Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress. It is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I ring in the holidays with a two-plus-hour discussion of the new trailers for Captain America Civil War and Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice, as well as the Marvel TV show Jessica Jones, the first issue of The Sheriff of Babylon, and the second issue of The Vision, both written by Tom King, the second volume of Earth 2 World's End, Batman and Robin Eternal, Spidey Number 1 by Robbie Thompson and Nick Bradshaw, and much, much more. Show notes are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester! Graham McMillan, hello! Hi! Sorry for not being around immediately, but I was making tea because it is that cold. Oh, well that's actually kind of a relief and not just in a I hope you freeze to death kind of way, but more just like I was but like, I, oh. But I do also hope I freeze to death. Well, of course. I, I mean, I sort of felt that went without that saying, but yeah. But, uh, but there was also kind of that thing of like, I'm like, this is kind of taking a while. Is our internet connection bad? Uh. So I was already in the process of second guessing uh, our tech problems, which really, that, that's not a good way to start a show. So no, let's face it, you're probably just cutting down on time because there's going to be tech problems at some point. It's a wait what episode, everyone. Uh, you know, we, we, we had a good run there. We had such a good run where there was like none of that crap and then suddenly crap. And then there was, yeah. So, speaking of crap, and then there was not crap, oh my goodness, Graham McMillan, before we start talking comics, uh, I thought we would talk about uh, comics-related media. Um, would this be the movie trailers? I Ooh, the plural? I See, this is yeah. the brilliance. Well, yeah. there was Civil War last week. There was the, the new Captain America Civil War trailer last week. Oh, you're right. So, yes, trailers. So, between that... And there's the Superman trailer, which I liked today. And I think I'm the only person on the internet who liked it. Really? I thought I saw a lot of people who liked it. I saw a lot of, I saw an amazing amount of people being utterly dismissive about it. Okay. Well, I tell you what, for those of us, I mean, I'm sure we'll end up linking it in the show notes, but let's just say some people are listening to this without the access of the show notes. Tell me, tell us, tell us about the clip. What is it? Where did it pop up? Which, You've probably won uh, all of it. Uh, let's start with, let's start with Superman versus Batman. Cause I think that that's oh. the one that was like, Oh, I got to talk to Graham about this. Kind of thing. Okay. Uh, the second full trailer for open quotes Batman v Superman colon Dawn of Justice close quotes <laughs> um, was released last night. It actually debuted on the Jimmy Kimmel live show on ABC, mm-hmm. which is super weird um, because that's also the show that Captain America Civil War trailer mm-hmm. debuted on. But that makes sense right. because Disney and ABC are both owned by uh, Marvel and ABC are both owned by Disney. Yes. Warners? Who knows? Who knows why it went up, why it debuted there? Aside from, uh, for me, definitely, this new trailer very much feels like a response to the Captain America Civil War one. It is. Uh, it starts with about a minute of a conversation between Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne, who meet in some sort of shindig. With a hilariously blunt conversation where Clark Kent is like, what do you think about the bat vigilante in Gotham? And then 
I don't know if Ben Affleck is trying to channel Bill Clinton when he, he plays Bruce Wayne, but he does. And comes across a very sort of weirdly smarmy guy who's like, oh, he's fine, but you guys, you got your Superman and he's kind of shit. And then Jesse Eisenberg shows up as the weirdest fucking Lex Luthor ever. As yeah. a Lex Luthor who makes Kevin Spacey look normal. Yeah. And has a great line where he's like, hey, you guys are meeting each other. Shakes Clark Kent's hand and is like, you've got quite a grip. And then says Bruce Wayne, you don't want to get in a fight with this guy, which is so hilariously unsubtle. Yeah. I cackled. Mm-hmm. Indeed. I, gen- I, I thought this was the funniest fucking trailer. And I don't know. I think it's meant to be. But I also, I'm not entirely sure. Okay. Uh, because it does end with a joke. It Let- ends with an outright joke. Okay. Trailer. Let's, I'm going to make sure you, you summarize the rest of it uh, okay. before so we'll then, it then goes from there to... Uh, many of the scenes that have appeared in other trailers, uh, and, and other clips for it, which is essentially, it's Batman, he's kind of pissed off, there's a flashback to the events of Man of Steel, someone he knew, or many people he knew, died as a result of the big battle in Metropolis. You get, uh, Lex Luthor talking to a senator and basically being like, I am scheming. You see Batman and Superman kind of have a fight. You see Lex Luthor essentially say, I am cloning Zod, look, here's Doomsday. The trailer ends with, uh, Doomsday shoots some sort of laser vision at Batman and Superman. That laser vision is deflected by Wonder Woman, who shows up. Doesn't get any dialogue, because why would you let a woman speak in a film called Batman versus Superman? Come on. Uh, well, she well, is I mean, neither right. Batman nor Superman. I mean, come on. But did you, not, did you notice that in the trailer, you see... Three different instances of men talking to women, but the women don't get women don't say anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was the other one yeah. with, where Lex Luthor is talking to Holly Hunter's character, and I missed what was. Oh, right, and Lex he Luthor talked to Amy Adams, uh, talking right. to Lois uh, Lane at some point as well. That's right. Um, but so uh, one woman shows up, and it ends with the corniest joke in the world, which again I cackled at, which is Superman turns to Batman after one woman's appeared and goes. Is she with you? Batman goes, I thought she was with you. And that's the end of the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. I, I, I'm not even being sarcastic. I'm not being ironic. I loved it. I thought it was really funny. Mm-hmm. I love, and this is partly why I think it's a response to the Civil War trailer. Uh, I love it because it pretty much drops the pretense that this is actually a film about the two of them fighting. Hmm. Because then they're like, you know, they have clearly been manipulated, which everyone guessed, like, from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And it ends with them teaming up mm-hmm. against Doomsday. It's like, okay, here are your real bad guys. We'll tell you in the trailer, it's Doomsday and Lex Luthor. Doomsday is a cloned Zod. The superheroes are teaming up. You know, mm-hmm. that that's what your film is. As opposed to the Captain America Civil War trailer, which is also hilarious, but it, not in an intentional way. Um <laughs> You've seen that trailer, right? Yeah, yeah, at least at least twice. And so, uh, walk us through that one before so, you. Take... Why don't you walk us through that one? Seeing as uh, I walked us through. Well, because I saw it like last week, man. Like my memories are going to be like. Uh, so yeah, there's the Civil War trailer where uh, <laughs> okay, so Captain America is... like is with Bucky and Falcon, and Bucky's got his hand in a vice, and they're like they're coming for you, Buck, and. 
oh no, first it starts off with like, hey, do you know who I am? And he's like, of course I know you. Your mom's name was like Sharon and you got newspaper in your shoes. Yeah. It's the Captain America Civil War trailer is great because it plays up the uh the Tumblr Stucky fandom mm-hmm. to to an extent that you could, like the only next step for them is literally to end the trailer with them making out. <laughs> it's so great. It's like why why do people want to show up for this? Oh I know. The homoerotic overtones. Let's go. Let's do it. Uh as exemplified, my favorite point is that it's the towards the end of the trailer you have uh Captain America saying I've got to do this, Tony. He's my friend. And then you see a pained Robert Downey Jr. inside the Iron Man armor going, so was I. Yeah. It's just so hilariously melodramatic. And then it cuts to... So So the final scene of the Batman versus Superman trailer mm-hmm. is Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman like teaming up and facing the, the bad guy. Mm-hmm. The final scene of the Captain America trailer is Captain America and Bucky weirdly CGI'd at some points, punching Iron Man. Right. And it's like, okay. <laughs> I know all they need to know about both films now. Well, okay. So, alright. So I think that, thank you, Graham, thank you for the that summary. I have to say, for those people who haven't seen Captain America Civil War, I know that technically I should jump in there uh, and, and, and talk about oh, the, the, the appearance of the Black Panther, which yes, was a big deal. A bunch yeah. Well, it is and isn't. Like, the appearance of the Black Panther is literally blink and you miss him twice. Yeah, like, they run and you miss him three Black times. <laughs> no, but they run past him and he kicks Falcon. And what's the third time? Uh, it, there's the time where Captain America is chasing him in the garage. And... Oh, that's true. Captain America also chases him in the garage. But still, like, I died. Graham, Did you, see... you said uh, blink three to twice and I'm blinking three uh, times. No, no, you're, you're right. You're right. <laughs> My point was more like he's – I feel like even Doomsday in the new fucking Batman Superman trailer gets more play than Black Panther actually gets in the trailer. Oh, sure. Like I think if you, did, I think if you didn't know this is a new guy that you're supposed to be looking out for, mm-hmm. you'd just be like, what? Right. Right. Well, anyway, yeah. there's that. There's apparently a Spider-Man like glimpse if you're literally like taking it apart frame by frame. Really? Um, yeah, you get to see – like you get to see all the other Avengers, they all the other Avengers show up, yes, in, in like literally like second long cameos, mm-hmm. apart from Black Widow who gets dialogue, right? Graham, did you go? Did you go quiet? No, I was waiting for you to say something. I was oh, done. Oh, no, okay, because I was like, right, and I'm like, oh, I thought you were leading up to it. yes. So celebrity cameos uh, of the superhero sort. So okay, so. The two things that I want to say that are completely useless, so I'll get them out of the way before we get into discussing the trailers uh, in depth, is I wanted to give you Edie's take on them because they were both both her takes were actually pretty priceless, and will probably line up semi well with yours. In that she was she was watching because she came in and I was watching the Captain America Civil War trailer, so I backed it up and I restarted it, and literally. Two thirds of the way through the trailer, she's like, "I'm, I'm really confused. Didn't, didn't we already see this movie? Like, she really, she was, 
She's like, no, I mean, we, there's a scene of them where they're on the roof and they're punching things. And then there's the scene in the garage. And she really was. She was completely like, I'm really confused. Like, because she watched Winter Soldier with me and even paid attention to it. But one of the things that I thought was fascinating was looking back at it, I'm like, kind of like she's sort of right in the sense that the yeah. Captain America Civil War the way that it is shot, like, I swear to God, they, like, finished shooting Captain America Winter Soldier, and they were getting ready to pack up all the, the cameras and the lenses, and people, they were like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't remove any of those lenses, don't change any of the light settings, like, we're just going to be in here tomorrow, and we're just going to start filming well, this all over again. it's a Marvel movie, Jeff. It's got to look like a Marvel movie. You know, I'm not sure if I really necessarily subscribe to that. I, I, it does seem like they are developing an aesthetic, which really, um, I don't know. I mean, because for me, I actually thought Captain America Winter Soldier, although, I mean, A, it looked different from the first Captain America movie and arguably was more in line with, I suppose, the look of the first Avengers film. But I did feel like... Well, but also, didn't you think the second Avengers film was very in line with the look of Winter Soldier? Uh, I think there's a really clear through line yeah. with the, the, the Avengers and the, the, Cap, uh, the Captain America movies. Yes, yes, I think so. I, I think I think that is deliberate. So I found myself being very like, you know, I, A, I could understand her confusion. <laughs> that being said, I don't think that you'll share her response to uh, Batman v Superman uh, Dawn of Justice or whatever, where she actually told me, she's like, yeah, I watched it. Uh, and she's like, and I didn't understand why Xena Warrior Princess uh, popped up at the end. <laughs> she's like, I didn't understand that was Wonder Woman for like a very long time. And I'm like, how long? She's like, a very long time, Jeff. So uh, that well, was, that was I mean, like Black Panther. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, it's so true. Black Panther, you only really think he's a big deal if you know he's a big deal. Right. The Wonder Woman appearance in the Batman vs. Superman trailer, they never call her Wonder Woman. They never actually even refer to her beyond, is she with you? Yes. So if you had no idea who she was, right. you wouldn't know from the trailer. You would be like, oh, it's a you know, warrior princess. Yeah. It's it's random ancient warrior dudes or dudette mm -hmm. with a shield, right. I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so she was just kind of like, I'm not used to thinking of Wonder Woman as having a, a sword and a shield, and there's a few, and of course the muted color tones, and I'm like, which sort of makes sense. So interestingly enough, the reason why I, f I felt that the, this Superman v. Batman trailer was much more of a response to, and I could be wrong, more of a response to the first Batman v. Superman trailer, that they were kind oh, it's, of... It's, it's, there's course correcting. Because yeah. this one was humorless as shit, and this one is is genuinely funny in a weird way. Yes, yeah, yeah, and I think I think that the this one was a clarion call of, you know, a don't you know kind of don't count us out yet. Like you don't necessarily know what you're going to expect. <laughs> Probably, I mean, unless they've got more stuff going on. Part of me is like, yeah, I feel like the doomsday appearance. Oh, I, I think at this point we know exactly what to expect. Well, pretty close, pretty close. I mean, assuming you and me and and the other people who follow stuff on the internet, it's going to be like, oh, okay, there's the shape of the movie, uh, plus or minus, you know, some more Justice League cameos because we know like Jason Momoa is supposed to be in it or something. For for example, but. Yeah. 
you know, but definitely that doomsday bit, I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, those trailers that give away the last, the third act turn, you know, yeah. where it's like. Oh, it, it was really strange to see them be like, ah, and this is the real bad guy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that that was, that was surprising, but I also got the sense that they, the, this second trailer was so much more Jeff Johnsian in so many ways to me. Uh, and in a way that I almost felt that they were like, you know what? We, we need to make sure that the, that the, uh, fan, the fan audience knows that they're getting a shitload more fan service than they thought they were going to get, you know? Um, cause I do feel like definitely that Wonder Woman appearance is like, oh yeah, she's not going to be like on the sidelines as like Lex Luthor's like date or something like well, that. Well, what's you know? really interesting as well is that Wonder Woman saves them. Yes. The, the trailer. Mm-hmm. But, and with the, is she with you? No, I thought she was with you. She has more agency than any heroine in a Marvel movie yet in like a fucking trailer. And I honestly was like, is that there explicitly in the trailer? as a tweak to Marvel because Marvel has been getting progressively more and more in trouble about that. Uh, cinematically. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, that's why I mean cinematically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I maybe again, I personally, I think that that final shot is very much the, um, is like DC being like, no, this is, this is the DC Trinity. Like you've got the three of them right there. Um, and, and I, I, I feel Considering how much shit has been slung about the Wonder Woman movie coming together and taking so long to come together and people not being sure of what to expect, I feel like there is, uh, Warners has made it a priority to give us a sense that the, that the Wonder Woman movie is Moving for it, you know, is its own thing, is moving forward, and is, and that she is going to be an important player. So again, there's part of me where I feel like DC is playing and Warners is playing so much catch up that I'm not really sure that they have the luxury of being able to, to tweak Marvel. I feel that they're, they're doing their best to address their own issues in house, I think. I, I feel that. Everyone making a superhero movie these days is responding to Marvel in one way or another. I think you just have to. I think that Marvel is such the dominant force in the industry mm-hmm. that you have to. It, it could be. I mean, I would. it wouldn't surprise me if there's more of that buried in the movie itself. But for me, I was kind of like – and I could be wrong. I just find it – it's a little hard for me to to imagine that these guys, even if they saw an early cut of the Civil War trailer, they got a hold of the script that they were like, "Okay, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna start counter programming with this here." Yeah, I, 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 it's it's very the timing is so weird that either they edited the trailer together super fast, mm-hmm. or this is just like a strange coincidence. But it really did seem to me a very. Uh, Counter-programming intentionally or otherwise. That, uh, I, I, yeah. and if nothing else, I think the Batman-Superman trailer is amazingly self-conscious. Yes. I, th- I think you're right. I think it really is reacting to the f- first trailer. Not even the first trailer as much as the response to the first trailer. Yes. Because if you look at the f- trailer for Man of Steel, 
they were fairly consistent. Mm-hmm. They they were like, okay, we're doing you know abstract atmosphere pieces, and then we'll show a guy flying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, where this is our tone, and there really is a massive tonal shift between the first and second uh, Batman and Superman trailers. Yeah, but what's really interesting is. So the trailer, which when we were recording, came out yesterday. We're recording on Thursday, and it came out on Wednesday. Yeah. Monday of this week, there was the sneak peek uh, scene. Mm-hmm. It was released uh, during the fall uh, finale for Gotham. And that is tonally, tonally completely out uh, with the trailer. Hmm. Uh, it, did you see it? Mm-mm. No, I it's didn't. Literally fifty seconds of footage, mm-hmm. uh, and it some of that footage makes it into the trailer, which is the scene you uh, in the trailer you see Superman landing and people kneeling before him. Right. So the scene is Superman lands in a tunnel. These men who are wearing the Superman shield on their shoulder mm-hmm. kneel before him. He walks towards the camera and it reveals that he's walking towards a chained up Batman. Mm-hmm. And it is it is every parody of the Grimdark that people are go oh Zack Snyder Grimdark it is exactly that yeah because frowning you know scowling he then rips off Batman's cowl mm-hmm. and Ben Affleck then scowls at him mm-hmm. and then he holds the cowl out to his side and he turns and scowls at the cowl <laughs> and that's the scene yeah right and it is amazingly dark it is so dark. That it feels parodic, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's far more grimdark than Snyder's films actually are. Mm-hmm. But it's literally the wet dream of everyone who likes to complain that the films are grimdark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of people, interestingly enough, I've seen have been referring to online as a dream sequence. Huh. What? Really? Hmm. Yeah. And and it kind of it makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. as as a not real sequence, put it that way. Hmm. Because you have the soldiers who are dressed in like the Superman crest. Right. You have Superman keeping guys prisoner in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh and you have but also in the prison there's other people, it's not just Batman. Mm-hmm. So you have the concept of Superman keeping lots of people prisoner. Mm-hmm. And also People bow to Superman and he doesn't respond to it at all. Mm-hmm. And as much as Man of Steel got, like, had the Superman kill someone and everyone's like, that's not Superman, mm-hmm. you could make a case for that as well. Like, you know, lots of things were going on. It was in the spur of the moment. He made a bad decision. Right. It's much further to go, he's completely okay with people worshipping him. And by the way, he keeps people prisoners. Right. You know, that is massively outside anyone's idea of Superman. If your film relies on Bruce Wayne thinks that that is what Superman is, then it works as a dream sequence or a nightmare sequence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we will see. Because the the only thing that I would say, uh, the dream sequence makes a certain amount of sense. But I do think that, one, I... Snyder to me is a, is uh, an interesting dude in that as he seems to be a surprisingly intelligent for a meathead or vice versa, you know. And so it wouldn't surprise me if 
I mean, I I kind of have to look at his oeuvre, but I would I would say that he, you know, this is considering how much he's making noises, uh, at least originally, about the idea that Batman v Superman was going to take a lot from Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. Um, Miller's Miller's Superman in that book, and admittedly, this is you know, it was a book that was published in like 1985-86. Superman was very much the embodiment of the American military-industrial complex, you know. Yeah, and I let, let you finish your point, and then I'll argue with you. Oh, okay, so it would not surprise me to have him. Uh, toy uh, with that idea in a 21st century context, which has to do with a Guantanamo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, you know, so in that sense, the idea that that Superman, basically, as someone who doesn't kill but is trying to do good in the world, would he like? snag corrupt dictators and fly them and put them in his, you know, prison slash fortress of solitude. Yeah, I, I could sort of see it. Could I see him being um indifferent to the I to I guess religious uh 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 connotations being put on him while trying to accomplish them, like seeing it as a necessary evil. Yeah, I kind of can. I, I sort of, part of me is, I mean, who knows? I, Snyder's going to be doing a lot of things that are basically going to be designed around, like, crowd-pleasing, put them in the seats, this is a big screen IMAX experience that you've got to pay $20 for. But I do feel that considering how strongly movies like 300 and and, and Watchmen um, did not shy away from equating uh, superheroics with American imperialism, the idea that he might be building toward a Hey, here's here's America, and you've got the crazy anarchist, and you've got the you've got the guy who's going to do right across the world, no matter what anyone else in the world thinks. I I can see that happening in in a non dream sequence context. Let's put that. Way. I w- I would kind of love that to be honest, mm-hmm. um, but I still um, remarkably unconvinced that's actually the route they're going to take mm-hmm. in large part because the rest of the trailer and certainly the first trailer played up sure that the idea of people are worshipping Superman mm-hmm. but also played up the idea that he is seen as a threat by the military as opposed to that he would he represents the military right I, I, I think in this movie as much as he is lifting at least visually from Dark Knight mm-hmm I think Batman is ultimately going to be uh, representing the military and the status quo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that that could well be. I can. I think that's. I think that's actually a very good point because arguably it is a Superman movie. So at that point, if it if it really stays a Superman movie and the focus is uh, on him as you know, it's just very rare. It, it, to to build a movie where essentially that character isn't going to end up being the outsider and the loner and the person against whom, like you said, the status quo is is moving against. 
I suppose. Yeah, it, it's going to be... Uh, put it this way. I am really interested in Batman versus Superman. Mm-hmm. I find myself amazingly bored by Civil War. Uh, in large part because not only was it not a great trailer, mm-hmm. which is not unusual. Like, Marvel's trailers have not been great. Mm-hmm. If you think of, like, the first Ant-Man trailer was terrible. Yes, sure. But, like, the first Age of Ultron trailer even mm-hmm. was kind of generic. And, like, Marvel just kind of does, especially now because we've seen enough. Like, this will be the 13th Marvel movie. Yes. We've seen their tricks by now. Right. So, you know, if you're not actively invested in the characters, which I think the Civil War trailer is really playing on, mm-hmm. then they're not really – there's not really anything there for you, at least in the trailers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, going back to what Edie said, it does feel like you've seen this film a lot. Mm-hmm. Like having Iron Man go, we were friends too – it's ridiculous when in every film they've shared the screen and they're fighting all the time. In in fact, they what's a, what is hilarious is is that they included that moment. They've got like three moments between Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans, and one of them is like Tony Stark saying, "Like I wish I could just punch you in your perfect face," and I'm, you know, you're just like, huh? You know, it's like okay, like, that builds also, the conflict, but, but you know, no, but also business as usual. Like yeah, think sure. about Avengers: Age of Ultron. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. where it's, where it's where the two have always been in conflict. Yeah. And they overcome the conflict because there's a greater evil, but mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, you have William Hurt show up and be like, people call you a vigilante, Captain America, because no, there's no oversight. And I was like, but there's always oversight with Captain America in the movies. Right. He fucking worked for S.H.I.E.L.D. Right. Like the one time he went against the status quo, it's because S.H.I.E.L.D. were evil. Yeah. He took them down, and then in the end of the Avengers film, he's building a new shield again. Yeah. Well, and I, th- I no, do, it, it I, just it rings absolutely false. I think that is. I think. Well, first off, I think there are problems with the Marvel Cinematic Universe that uh, arguably could have been chalked up to the supposed conflict between the the film division and the you know, publishing divisions, brain trust, but I think really just points to a, um, a fascinating, almost misunderstanding, I guess, of sort of classic continuity. Um, because yeah, the, as you pointed out, uh, a while back, Captain America Winter Soldier runs in conflict with Avengers Age of Ultron and what they're doing on the, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show at the same time. So the thing that's funny is is the Captain America Civil War sort of the trailer, if you take it on its own terms, sort of makes sense if you are willing to ignore all the other stuff that kind of contradicts it, you know, that's happening in quote unquote the same universe. Uh, Which is – I mean so let's jump off this for a second. You watched the Jessica Jones show, right? Oh, God. Well, see, that was actually the point that I was going to bring in next to talk about our our spree of media. But before I do that, let me just roll it back because I do think that perhaps – and I could be wrong uh, – the, the Stucky stuff that you see in – uh, Captain America Civil War that you're like, ah, that's film service, uh, fan service. I'm like, I would argue that they are trying to craft that as, you know, as the 
emotional linchpin that oh, is going no. to get you into the relationship, it is, right? It is the emotional linchpin of the film. Yeah. And as such, it works so much better than the new Warriors thing in the comic. Mm-hmm. Like, you can believe yeah. that Cap would turn against everyone else that he knows for the guy that he fought in the war for. Yeah. yeah. You know, in the comics, it was always kind of a jump Yeah, to yeah. go... Oh, that Shield, who he works with all the time, he's decided he doesn't like that, so he will go to war with them as opposed to try and talk it out. Like, right. that that was always the jump of, you would just have to accept it. Yeah. You're like, okay, th- this is the comic. This is the story, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Um, so so that, I think, is, is great in the movie. Mm-hmm. But for me, they then complicate it with this, you're a vigilante, and so there's these accords that you have to go by. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't need that. Just use Bucky. Yes. Yeah, and just have it build as a rift. I I absolutely agree with that. Uh, But I was just saying that I do think – I mean, to me, part of the thing that is, to me, super important about Captain America Civil War succeeding or failing as a movie – I feel is is that they're really going to have to sell. They're going to have to nail that Steve and Bucky relationship and make it work because honestly it does – I felt it didn't even really work in the Winter Soldier, which is tough because it becomes a linchpin of the fight between the two characters. And I think that to the extent that there are worrying red flags for me about Captain America Civil War, because I I do want to point out that, as you know, Marvel is is a big fan of the three trailer approach. So the first trailer, you know, the fact that you're kind of like, eh, this first trailer really didn't bring much. I'm like, they usually make it a point to continue to build the, yeah, but, you know, but, the storm and thunder by the time they? they get to the third. Because, no, but I don't think they do. I think if you go back and watch the trailers for Civil War, you watch the trailers for Ant-Man, that's not the case. Yeah, okay, but Guardians and the Avengers Guardi- Guardians and also Soldier. Guardians also didn't. Guardians was pretty much nailing everything in its first trailer. Well, that's that is that like, is true in terms totally of and in terms of plot. Yeah, there's so much in the first trailer that basically makes it through to the last trailer. Uh, yeah, okay. and Iron three, the trailers were entirely consistent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like where and also Avengers for that matter. Where where is your Marvel's rule of three coming from? Well, just the fact that they do three trailers. Maybe, maybe they up the the bombast then with more cool shit. But I'm just, I'm very aware that they do three trail. It, that it's not just the first trailer all the way through. There are three different trailers. Even if they keep the consistency, I personally feel that they do a lot of testing to make sure that they finesse the message by the time they get to the third trailer. And you're right. I think in movies where they're like, oh, it's a slam dunk, like Iron Man 3 or Guardians, where the, the everything was strong enough and in place enough for the first, then they can just sort of build on, you know, throwing in more imagery, throwing in yeah. more fan service. But, well, I mean, uh, it, it's, you know, it's worth remembering that the Ant-Man trailer that everyone disliked, mm-hmm. there was a significant shift. Yes. Between the first and second trailers. That's right. That's right. And it, very similar to the shift between the Batman trailers, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, first and second trailers of Batman, uh, Superman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I, I do think, I do want to just throw in before we move on to either your next point or to Jessica Jones, that, that Marvel is more than capable of, of course correcting. And in that sense, maybe just looking at a second, tra- you know, a second trailer versus a first trailer, um, it's probably not surprising that you're going to get one is going to be more refined in, uh, than the other, I think. Okay, but here's uh, here's the response to that, Jeff. <laughs> Do you think Marvel thinks it needs to refine? Because the sense I got from Civil War mm-hmm. was, we're Marvel, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you are already fans of us. You know these characters, you know the relationships, you're invested in these relationships. This is the next step of these relationships. Because if you come to Civil War fresh, mm-hmm. without the baggage of the earlier films, mm-hmm. there's literally nothing there. The uh, trailer relies on, I can't believe Captain America has turned on his friends for the love of his best friend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's, it's, you know, it's Transformer level empty bombast. Uh, and I, I think I think Marvel knows exactly what it's doing with the marketing of Civil War. It's just that it doesn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could that could be the case. I mean, that could be the case. I personally feel that that the opening sequence with uh, with Steve and Bucky, and then also the uh, conversation between Black Widow uh, and Steve is very much set up. I mean, admittedly, those things are kind of... I don't know if those would make sense if you haven't seen the previous Captain America films, I guess. You know, but but in terms of for what it is as a story that is cold, it seems to me to be doing a, a decent job of keeping it a... selling it as a Captain America story with Captain America stakes, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if that's if that makes sense. Yeah, and I I was actually really interested to see an interview with the directors where they were like, "This isn't a tie-in to the Avengers. This is a Captain America film." Yeah, and it was uh, both. I was both happy to see that, mm-hmm. but also part of me was like, "It's not though." <laughs> like, like these days, they're just not allowed to be. Uh, I well, okay. When you have, when you have this many. Of the other Avengers in there? Yes. It, it isn't, it's essentially Avengers 2.5. Um, but that doesn't mean it can't also work as a cap story. And I yes. think that making Bucky the heart of it keeps it as much of a cap story as it can be. Sure. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, it keeps it as a, as a, like you said, it's a, it's a very elegant solution for adapting the comic. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what I was going to say is, when I mentioned Jessica Jones before, and this will help us pivot onto that, is watching Jessica Jones, did you at any point, and this is actually also true of Daredevil, did you at any point really think that it took place in the same world as the Marvel films? Hmm. Well, it's interesting because I swear that I saw a point about this recently. Jessica Jones, no... Weirdly enough, Daredevil, yes, uh, because What's the difference. The well, there's there's two. I guess there's two differences. The difference is is that Daredevil does not make any sense with current reality. 
You know what I mean? Like it's very much uh, one of the things that's kind of clever about Daredevil is the idea that, that thanks to having bits of alien shit like fall on New York, uh, Hell's Kitchen is, you know, you basically have a plot gimme of Hell's Kitchen is now a, a shithole again, you know? <clears throat> okay. Um, and, and that so it's, just, it's an entirely a uh, situational setting that allowing the event, allowing Avengers to happen. Yeah. Uh, allows Hell's Kitchen to be the shithole that the plot demands of it. Yes. Yeah. That, that, so that was it for me. And I mean, the, uh, the, the weird thing about Jessica Jones, um, is that weirdly it did not feel connected to the Marvel universe in any way, despite how much that it was pretending to, and despite the certain levels of fan service and whatever, whatever the German word is for future fan services to be rendered, you know, (laughs) those, despite the fact of those things clearly being in there, I was like, it does not feel like a Marvel universe. Weirdly, what found, what I found interesting about Jessica Jones was that it felt, it was, it was the show that felt the most like a comic book universe. Um, to me, from anything out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the Marvel TV Universe, why? Uh, okay, well, and, and, right, and let's let's go into this discussion yeah. with the listeners knowing what you know, which is I made it to one episode of Jessica Jones, and then honestly thought, eh, I'm not that interested. I'm not really finding that much to enjoy about this show. Yes, um, what I know about the future direction of this show is actively a turn-off for me, and so I give up. Right. I might go back at a later point, but I, there's so many other things I could be doing with my time. Right. Okay. So, Whereas you liked it, right? Let me get there. Let me get there. I don't. Uh, let me get to my point, and then I'll address what I feel are some incredibly ambivalent feelings about, about the show, um, which is interesting for me, and I'll, I'll get to it in a second. So... Uh, but first off, let me say that one of the things that I thought was interesting about Jessica Jones is, uh, and, and everyone should assume that we're going to have full spoilers here because that's just the way we roll. But in case you don't know, now you know. Um, by the time you get to the, say the, uh, the final episode of, of the show, you have had a, uh, uh, you, you've got a woman who is working as a private eye who has superpowers. You've got a dude who owns a bar who has superpowers. You've got her best friend from childhood who has basically been training up with Krav Maga and weaponry and all sorts of things, so much so that she has superpowers. They pick up a cop buddy who becomes the best friend's lover who was formerly special forces. And at one point after he is, um, you know, on the verge of death, he ends up basically being taken to a mysterious doctor and being given superpowers. What is really funny is this all sounds like agents of shield to me. We'll see. And that's it. Not having watched agents of shield. Part of me, was like, maybe this is kind of the, this is how the Marvel TV thing works. 
interestingly enough, for Daredevil, I, one of the things that I thought worked pretty well, very well, in fact, was the level of Daredevil is the character is relatively unique enough, and yet because it is tied into the criminal underworld, you only have to have like a couple of gimmies in order to basically have something that sort of seems more or less like Daredevil as a TV show. But some of those gimmies really stand out. Like, uh, you know, there's there's a scene in the Daredevil show where, uh, you know, his old mentor shows up to, to you know, it's like, oh, I need God. your help to <laughs> yes. retrieve a thing with a book and a kid. And suddenly you're right in the middle of a super ninja plot. And it, and it really kind of sticks out because even though you've had relative levels of, I mean, for the most part, Daredevil has a lot of him just bludgeoning people and being yes, bludgeoned just by lots of shit. guys. Yeah, yeah, just beating shit up. But yeah, you're true. When Stig shows up, it becomes ridiculous. Yeah, it kind of takes a jump. Or like that you, you kind of have trouble, you have trouble clearing that hurdle. One of the things that I think is kind of interesting uh, about Jessica Jones, the way that it made me feel was at first I was like, oh, come on. It's like everybody in this fucking show is going to end up with a superpower. And yet, weirdly enough, how do I put it? That was the point at which it came closest to me being kind of like, oh, uh, this is going to sound crazy, but it reminded because I've been rereading the old Iron Fist. I'm like, it's a lot like a Chris Claremont comic. Jessica Jones is. I know that it's based on Brian Bendis and Michael Gatos, and I'll get to that whole other angle for itself. But honestly, in the sense of that, Chris Claremont in the '70s could not end up throwing in someone's roommate without it turning out that they also had like a bionic arm and samurai training. And they also happen to be like the world's best, you know, softball pitcher of all time or whatever. Similarly, in Jessica Jones, you base, you have all these characters that, that are, I suppose, entries for audience identification. Um, and, and sort of also like Claremont, they tend to be women and they tend to, or, and, or people of color. And that part was kind of, awesome like part of me is kind of like yeah okay what once i went from and for whatever reason and th this may be the the i guess the other part of it maybe because jessica jones starts off with quote unquote superpowers that you see her doing relatively early on there might be a higher level of uh gimme i suppose mm -hmm. but um in a way, Jessica Jones, like I said, Chris Claremont, and also a lot of the first season of Heroes in the sense of... Yeah, I actually got a Heroes thing as well from it. Mm -hmm. It's it's really strong. Now, that being said, one of the things that was uh, dismaying to me was seeing... Because sort of the same way that you were the only person you felt like on the internet who liked that second Batman vs. Superman trailer... I feel like the only person on the internet who thought that despite liking Jessica Jones, the show is 
markedly terrible in many places and many respects. I oh, think, I, I'll agree with you that it's terrible. It's just I don't agree with you about liking it. Well, no, 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 no. Well, I know. And I'm sure we don't have to sift the, the pan far for for people to find. Like, I, I also agree that I like the second Batman versus Superman trailer. But having seen all of Jessica Jones, the thing that really struck me that was hard was going back and reading people essentially praising it for like nuanced portrayals and good acting and uh are actually in there the acting that is in jessica jones is some of it is kind of in there it's in there in that i I was genuinely surprised by all the plotters that uh kristen ritter got yes because she is bad to to be honest i um, there like Mike were... Coulter's good. Mike yeah. Coulter is is good as Luke Cage. I thought but, so but too. Richard is amazingly one note. Yeah. Oh, really? To the point where, uh, again, you know, to use the bare metric, Edie started watching the show with me, and literally by episode four or five, she was like, "I cannot watch this anymore because I I hate that." woman so much and it and not in a oh it's a nuance you know it's like oh she's playing like a negative self-hating badass like that Edie doesn't have any problem with that but Kristen Ritter's performance is is genuinely terrible and to me what's interesting is is there are times where I honestly felt that whoever was putting the show together either did not know how to instruct the directors or the directors themselves didn't necessarily weren't necessarily uh, directors that were good with actors because Mike Coulter, who I think is frankly good, is good is everyone is very very exceedingly one notish. Uh, some people are actually pretty good at that note. Like I thought that the the two Australian actors who are playing the American actors um, who play uh, Trish Walker. And uh, uh, Will Simpson, both Aussies, the the dude Simpson, the the guy there clearly watched a shit ton of girls DVDs until he could sort of imitate Adam Driver's accent. And that's odd, but fine. Like, you know, he, he was kind of OK. Every time he opened his mouth, I was kind of like, what? Why are you? Whoa. But but I thought uh, Trish Walker, the the actress playing her, at first I was like, eh, she actually really did sell me on it. By the time you get to issue 12, where, full spoilers, Rosario Dawson shows up to remind you that whatever Rosario Dawson's being paid, it's not nearly enough, uh, shows up as Night Nurse for a couple of her scenes, you're really aware of how, at best, A, how barely competent so many of the actors are and B how much they are laden with genuinely terrible dialogue. The, the writing in the show is really bad. It's to me, it is substandard. Now it, it is worth to me keeping in mind that a lot of people were like, well, no, but I'll put that to one side. It, to me, Wait, just, no, 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 no. Finish that thought. Well, I was going to say that apparently some people were uh, the, the the showrunner uh, is it Melissa Rosenberg or Melinda yeah. Rosenberg? It's Melissa yeah, Rosenberg. Melissa, yeah. yeah, had written for the early seasons of Dexter. I thought Dexter was so ridiculous and 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 poor that I jumped off 
maybe two episodes into season two. And frankly, season one was such a sense of diminishing returns that I was very much like, uh, should I try season two? Sure. Maybe, maybe they'll real, they'll watch their shit and realize that they got to get their act together. You know, it sometimes happens between seasons. And instead, I thought you were going to bring up the fact that she made, uh, she wrote the twilight movies. Oh, yeah, no, I did not follow that enough to, I still haven't watched any of them, nor have I read the source material. Well, I read the first hundred pages of the first Twilight book, which, you know, uh, so yeah, I don't really have much of a take, uh, of a hot take on, on Melissa Rosenberg, but watching, uh, Jessica Jones, I've, I was like, there is shit in here that is, that reminded me a lot of Dexter in the sense that it is crap that, that, People that basically, you know, you would have to be a Lawrence Olivier level actor to be able to sell some of the ridiculous shit spilling out of people's mouths. Um, and honestly, I have to say that uh, uh, that also held true with um, David Tennant, you know, who I think Tennant is one of those guys, since I'm not a Whovian, I've seen literally one episode uh, with him as Doctor Who and I saw the entire first season of Broadchurch where I thought he was great like I I feel that David Tennant is a good strong actor he starts off horribly in this show and manages to get a little bit better because he's being given better material and I think is as a an actor but but basically, a lot of his shit for a, for the first four episodes, the competition between him and Kristen Ritter for who can be the most one note uh, is is a fierce competition. It's a fierce competition. Uh, so yeah, uh, Ritter is bad. And in fact, the episodes towards the end that I enjoyed the most, once the various subplots are kicking, there's an episode where she basically shows up in like two scenes in 20 minutes. And it's such an enjoyable 20 minutes for me. So, so here's, and here's the thing, despite bashing Jessica Jones, the thing that I think is really interesting about the show, the reason why it works for, worked for me more or less, like, why I continue to watch it throughout the, 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 the headachery, the reoccurrent headachery of it, uh, is that for, for me, what's fascinating is it's barely the Jessica Jones show and it's really more or less the Kilgrave show. You know, it's the Purple Man show. One of the things that I really give them credit for is apart from one blatantly corny episode where Jessica goes out and solves a case that's not related to the main arc. The majority of the case is very much a battle between uh, Jessica and the people who get sucked into the, her fight with Kilgrave. And the majority of it is really Kilgrave. Like for me, honestly, in sort of a weird, like, Oh, Hey, this is kind of like, it, it, like, if you can if you can imagine Jessica Jones as a very odd like they really took the death note material and mangled the shit out of it it's kind of uh it's kind of to me it's like this is a show that I very much want to see it goes into dark enough places and it's very much a bunch of people in New York 
fighting what appears to be an unstoppable villain who the instant you let him get a second ahead of you can turn the tables on you. One of the things that I really enjoyed about Jessica Jones was how much they focused on that story. Like, unlike just about any other season that I've seen, there was, they really cut out the kind of... uh Veronica Mars approach of, okay, we've got our series wide story that we're, you know, sprinkling in the mythology episodes or the mythology part of each episode. And then we've got the self-contained stuff that can, that people can just jump right into. One of the things that's great about Jessica Jones is because it, it is a show that is very much made consciously and sensibly to be binge watched so that you don't really have to worry on trying to figure out a way to sell people at issue four or five if they haven't seen the first three episodes. And consequently, it's a little more streamlined for that. And like I said, for myself, the idea of like, oh, you're up against someone who can literally take an entire room full of people and, you know, put them on the verge of killing themselves unless you follow what this person does. Uh, I... That show, which is the bulk of what Jessica Jones is, um, was dark enough and interestingly enough, interesting enough and where they really did, there wasn't, there was not the sort of season one of heroes vamping for time that, that you, that you frequently get. It really kept pretty close to the bone and was like, okay, we're going to flip the script here. Okay. We're going to flip the script here. We're going to flip the script here. And as long as you're not necessarily paying attention to the idea of like, oh, but they're, you know, they're going to have to keep this conflict alive till the 13th episode. To me, it was kind of like, oh, in a moment to moment way. It was like, oh, I didn't think that they were going to go here. What are they going to do? How are they going to play it out? And usually there was something interesting enough that, and then they would flip it again. So the, the show has a lot of speed with it. But like I said, for me, what worked was that it is entirely about people, some of whom have uh, very unconvincing superpowers, trying to fight uh, uh, an unstoppable baddie who is not quite omniscient, but is absurdly difficult to fight. And I'm like, that shit is like catnip for me. And it makes me wonder, I have no idea how they're going to do a season two. Yeah, exactly. A season two that can in any way in that sense, I think measure up to, cause that hook was primal enough that it kept me on the line for 13 episodes. Even when I was like actively hating the performance of, of the main actress, you know, what's really interesting is a couple of things. One that, uh, Rosenberg has actually said that she's not sure there's going to be a season two. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's phrasing it as Marvel's so busy and Netflix is so busy. And part of me is also like, but you've also finished Jessica's story. Right. Like, that is the point where Jessica's story ends in the comic. Sure, mm-hmm. she gets married to Luke. But at that point, she essentially becomes a supporting character in Luke's story. Right. Which is a real shame, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I think it's... I'm kind of sad that, like, Jessica Jones became who Jessica Jones became in the comics. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as she was even brought into Pulse, she was essentially defined as a character. Yes, absolutely. But, but as soon as she became a supporting character in New Avengers, she became a supporting character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She went from lead to supporting character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, 
one of the another reason why I dropped out is knowing that it was all going to be about Kilgrave. I just wasn't interested. Right. If there if there had been other stories, I might have stayed with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I how do I get it? Like, maybe I personally think, considering the amount of acclaim that they have for the show, I don't necessarily know if that means that it's going to be as clearly as much of a hit as the first Daredevil season is. I personally think that Rosenberg herself would be like, I mean, A, it wouldn't surprise me if she was like, yeah, I don't know if they're going to do it because I can see Marvel being kind of a, uh, I think they want to take each season on a case by case basis. I mean, I personally think that if they're, if they're, successful enough and Netflix is willing to pony up the money, I think that they oh, would sure. be perfectly I, I, I happy. Yeah. I think that's what happened with uh, Daredevil. Right. Well, and and so, well, I, I'll, it, which let me get to that in, in a moment too, I think, in a, in a way. Uh, but I do feel that I I think someone is going, they're, they're going to want to have someone, assuming, like I said, a, considering that it's enough of a success, and B, considering that it is a relatively low-income, no-stakes investment for them to appease uh, basically female Marvel fans and or fans of, of color, um, I think it's a, I think it's a relatively easy way to kind of keep people kind of uh I think they will come back to it. I just think that someone's going to have to figure out what the fuck to do that's going to have anything kind of like cuz I I do feel that you know like I said that that first hook is kind of a monster and they might be you know like the way they end it they very much end it in a way that is a satisfying rap for the character which is hilarious because thanks to the nature of the fan service and the stuff they've introduced it's it's that show is all over the fucking map i mean the thing that i found both amusing and disappointing is uh and you know again i'm spoiling the shit out of things there's a point at which the the cop who ends up getting involved with Trish Walker and ends up being like a special forces guy. Once he ends up being dragged off to the, you know, he basically is like, drive me to the hospital. You're dying. Just ask for this one doctor. They ask for the doctor. This Dr. Kozlov comes in and is like, Oh, well, we'll take care of you. And the, basically the next scene that you see, you see him handing the pills to the, well, actually I think what happens is the guy says like, give me a red. And you're like, oh, shit. So, uh, oh, are you still there? There was a clunky I'm still noise. here, yeah. Oh, good. Um, there was such a, there was such a, a clanging, cludging fan service, like, wrench dropped on the floor where it's like, hey, everyone, it's Nuke, you know? And the fact that that character shows up, shoots some people, has a fight, and then sort of gets swept up by mysterious agents and is gone, like, entirely gone by the end of the show part of me is like eh. i mean if they're smart i suppose they could maybe have jessica jones versus the you know evil government organization might be an arc for season two but it really to me felt like oh man well you just know that's, that this well, guy that's a terrible it's a terrible idea for season two well uh, yeah maybe i mean maybe i mean does anyone really want to see jessica jones versus the government 
Well, Jessica Jones versus a shadowy government, I think, might be a way to sort of mimic the she's in the shit kind of uh, feeling that they, they're going for in season one. I mean, honestly, I was going to complain about the fact that, that to me it was obvious they're not going to go that route, although they make it a point to tie in um, the the character, uh, the new character, his shadowy corporation may well be the shadowy corporation that was involved in Jessica's accident that gave her her powers. But... Uh, so they've got that, they've got that in place, but to me, it's far more likely that they, they whisked this guy right from the set of Jessica Jones over to the set of Daredevil season two. And we're like, okay, get ready for your big punch em up, you know, where you get the to... Avengers, uh, sorry, defenders. Yeah. I, I get the sense that they're not going to let the character sit that long, although it may, it wouldn't surprise me if he weaves into daredevil season two and, and back out, out again, because that is one of the things, like I said, the, the part that really entertained me about the, the universe was the fact that every character was right on the verge of becoming a superhero before your very eyes and, or had special powers, but that was fine. As long as they were being introduced when Rosario Dawson shows up in the final episode, it is so clunky and so wedged in there and so filled with 9 million references to Daredevil in a way that is just cloying and shitty. I, I was really, really fascinated. To me, to me, I found it cloying and shitty. Um, may, maybe other people disagree, but every one of them, it was just like really leaden. Also, there's just ridiculous amounts of the way they, they, they cast her. Uh, the way they put um, Night Nurse into the story, it literally has her them being like, hey, we don't know you, but you, you need to do this. Okay, now you need to do this. Okay, you've got to do this. And you're kind of like, why would she even – like there's just no sense that she would necessarily be doing those things, except they kind of have to explain it as like, you know, yeah, that's your power. Your power is caring for people. And it's like, ugh. It's, yeah. it's like there's the, – there are there are points there, and that's the other thing that bothers me about the Marvel TV division is every time Jeff Loeb's uh, name pops up in the credits, I flinch. And there's there's a couple of there's a couple of lines in there that are so Jeff Loebian that the only thing missing is the actor saying at the end, "This line was written by Jeff Loeb," you know? Because I mean, it just <laughs> there's one point where David- this line was brought to you by Jeff Loeb. Exactly. There's one point where David Tennant like uh, says something that's a variation on the tagline for the first season of Heroes, and he's like, "Hey, make a tagline out of that. That'd make a hell of a show." And I'm like, "Oh, Jeff Loeb, I want to kick you in the balls so bad because that is such the you know Loeb is such a big fan of that you know a little tick." Ooh. Anyway, um, I could go on and just rant and froth about Jeff Loeb. But I feel like I've given you enough background of how I felt about Jessica Jones that you can now mock me until I burst into tears. I, I'm, I'm super – like you've not convinced me to see it, if that makes sense. No. Like I, you, you made me feel much better about not sticking with it. Yeah. Well, I was going to actually ask you if you had seen – if you watched the Flash versus Arrow team-up episode. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm 
I'm behind on Flash. I'm maybe a couple of weeks behind on Flash. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because I, I am sort of like, in my head, I was like, A, I'll never convince Graham to watch this show. B, it's not really a show that I think Graham would ever like because I don't think that that's his, like, uh, ugly, see-me thriller sort of thing is necessarily his forte. Not that it's not not, but, you know. But I was kind of like, oh, well, and then we can talk about the idea that that maybe with the Flash Arrow stuff is is that, that superhero people, superhero fans are getting to the point where they kind of have a choice about what they want to watch, you know, what kind of superhero show they want to watch, which if you think about it is is probably a good thing, right? You know, it's yeah, not just and all I, well, of a stripe. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, I feel that... I feel that that, has, that choice has been in place for a while. Mm-hmm. I think the choice has been in place since Flash started, actually. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Supergirl sort of backs up the Flashness, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Um, because Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is is a mess. Mm-hmm. Like, have you have you stuck with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. at all? Oh, I, I never started. I never started with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, I've never that, seen a, a single right episode choice. of it. Yeah, well, that's it. That really genuinely was the right choice. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a fascinating show. It's one of these things that for people like me who love to watch things that have failed and spend a lot of time like going, why, why doesn't this work? Mm-hmm. Uh, the first couple of seasons of Agents of Shield are fascinating mm-hmm. because the first season is clearly them thinking that it's working. Mm-hmm. I don't need to do anything up until like maybe the last five episodes <laughs> where you you almost feel as if someone was like, listen, I just, I, no one's had the guts to tell you this, but your show is shit. <laughs> uh, and so you have this like abrupt change in the last five episodes. Right. The second season is then flop sweat <laughs> mixed with direction from on high to introduce the Inhumans. Right. Right. You know what it's like, and lots of people were like, "Yeah, the show's finally found its voice," and it was like, "Well, the show's found a voice." <laughs> <laughs> Not sure whose voice it is, right? Uh, and, and I didn't even return for the third season. Oh, really? I watched one episode, which was the uh, Simmons is trapped on an alien planet episode, mm-hmm. because the reviews were amazing for that show. They were like, "This show is this proves that it's a great science fiction show," and it doesn't. It proves that people who've been who've watched enough Agents of Shield, their standards are really low. <laughs> right, exactly. They're like, I'll take it's, anything. It's anything. like going, you know, the last episode of Gotham proved that it's one of the greatest crime shows ever made on television. I was like, no. Who said that? Wait, that was a thing that no, someone no, said no, with their face. No, it was they, not the Gotham no, publicist. No, or... no, no one did. Oh, okay. okay. But I'm saying it, it would be like that. It would be like that. Yes. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, it's it's but you know it's but it's a bad show. It's a it's a failed show that they just won't admit has failed. Mm-hmm. Agent Carter is a better show, but it's still seriously flawed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Agent Carter survives on the charm of its main cast, mm-hmm. which is great because they're charming as shit. Mm-hmm. They're really like you. You will that show to survive. <laughs> Which you're like, I want to watch Hayley Atwell do this. I really do. Like, I want to watch Hayley Atwell do this for years. Right. And so you overlook that the, the, the writing is terrible. Right. right. But you were just like, oh, come on, Hayley Atwell. You know, look like a 1940s dame and 
deliver shittily written bon mots as if they're, you know, as if they're funny. Right. That's great. I'm there with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Arrow was pretty much like Grim Smallville for the first year. Right. And then the Flash came along and was like, look, you can have this sort of admittedly self-consciously funny show, but mm-hmm. a funny light superhero show that is not embarrassed about its source material. Mm-hmm. And features characters who embrace that sort of material. Mm-hmm. So you have Cisco just going, I'm going to call him Captain Gold. I'm going to call you like Golden Glider. And, and it's silly, mm-hmm. but it loves the silly and it embraces the silly. Right. You know, the fact that they had King Shark in there and then the next week were like, oh, and it's Gorilla Grot again. <laughs> it's wonderful. I love that stuff. Uh, so you really do. You have that and you have Jessica Jones, which is a very, very, very different show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you really do have a choice. I was fascinated to see stories after Jessica Jones dropped, which was like, Supergirl, you don't have to exist anymore before Jessica Jones. Which <laughs> such a, that was a real story. Really? Wow. Yes, genuinely was like, there's no reason for Supergirl to exist anymore. We have a Jessica Jones. Holy shit. Which, which was amazing because not only did it suggest that Jessica Jones is inherently better than Supergirl, mm-hmm. but it also suggests that there can only be one type of superhero show. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that you, everything's trying to perfect this one formula. And to, I, it's been an hour, Jeff, but I'm going to try and bring us back to comics for a second. I think that something is happening in superhero comics for the last couple of years is the publishers recognizing that they actually would be better served to go outside of having one formula. They should have multiple formulas. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to see that the media, uh, the 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 transmedia element, mm-hmm. the movies and the, and the TV, are trying to deal with that as well now. Like, is is there a platonic ideal of a superhero movie, or can superhero movies be multiple things? Right. Is there a platonic ideal of a superhero TV show, or is there multiple things that, that could be as well? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, yeah, I I would say that um, because because comics because the Definitely the shared universe nature of the big two has been around for such a long time. I do feel that um, maybe that idea waxes and wanes uh, for each company over time. There's times where it's like the, yeah, let's do our own thing. And, oh, no, wait, let's all be, you you know, let's have it be a unified thing or tone. Um, Runs through, I I feel like each of the big two have had eras you know where that where it's one or the other and so they move back and forth on it what i find fascinating is the idea that that tv and movies that the superhero concept is been around long enough that yeah you're starting to see some tonal change but it but it's very it's it is it's only just starting out i mean the the fact is i think as you said marvel is very much a trying to turn out a very consistent tone or else they found a winning tone and they're continuing to make it. And they're, they're surprisingly conservative when it comes from deviating to that. And Warner's well, in terms of movies, just, yes, in terms of movies, uh, we will see what ends up happening with their TV division. 
you know, because I, because honestly, I've only seen Daredevil and Jessica Jones. I haven't seen Agent of Shield and Daredevil and Jessica Jones, despite taking place in quote unquote the same universe and the same city. And I swear to God, in some cases, looked like it was being shot on the same set. Were so differently assembled um, that they, to me, they feel they feel very different. You know, yeah, even yeah. you know despite having the same characters or settings. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, we'll see. And, and the thing that's interesting is to me, my worry is, is that as Marvel TV goes on and they get the hang, especially if they continue to uh, work in the Netflix binge watching method and build on that, even that my worry is, is that as it goes on, they will actually make their shows more mono su- succeed in making them more monochromatic and i and i think that's actually worrisome you know i i think that is something i my hope is is that is actually avoided but watching watching Jessica Jones i was kind of like yeah i almost feel like if it was avoided it was merely just because they don't have their shit together or they're literally working so fast they don't have time to 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 make it as cohesive as the, you know, as either their own OCD or their perceived OCD of their audience would make them want to do otherwise, you know. Mm-hmm. But yes, comic books. I, I think, I, A, I would like to talk about them. B, I've, <laughs> I've even read some. Uh, um, so. Okay, so let's, let's start with the comic that I said to you in email yesterday. Hey, you should buy this. Did you buy Sheriff of Babylon? The Sheriff of Who? No, yeah, no, I did. Actually, uh, I did. I was very excited. In fact, <laughs> I'm not your puppet, Mr. Kevin Kilgrave. I, I was planning on getting that damn book anyway. But uh, Kevin Kilgrave? Is he Kevin Kilgrave? He's he's Kevin and he is Kilgrave in the book. They spend a lot of time making fun of the name Kilgrave and the fact that it's an assumed name. Which uh, I was like, Stop drawing attention to that shit. Yeah, well, they kind of had – well, because they were kind of like – yeah, they did it. They 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 overdid it. It's perhaps unsurprising, but yeah, they. I mean, they really didn't commit to those things. I, anyway, yes, I yes, Mister Kevin Gilgrave. I was going to go out and buy Sheriff of Babylon, and by God, I did. Um, and uh, what did you what did you think of it? Uh, I liked it. It took me three goes to like it. Oh, interesting. I the first time I read it, I was just like, "What just happened?" <laughs> it felt amazingly disjointed and overly complicated. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I felt I really felt like I had trouble following it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and if it hadn't been for the fact that it was Tom King, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have read it again. Right. But because I like King so much, and because King is. Already, he already feels like uh, someone who likes to play with format as much as he likes to tell stories. Mm-hmm. I really had the I've I've read it wrong response. <laughs> right, I did. I I really did. I had the the fault is not the comic. The fault is me mm-hmm. because he is also yet to write something that does not make sense. Yes, as opposed to other writers who do all the time. Yes, um, and so I was like, no, that like that I didn't get this is my fault. Mm-hmm. I asked myself to read it again, and it took two goes for it to work for me. But it, in the end, it really did. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It really worked for me. Oh, good. I, what, I, you know, interestingly enough, this is this is where I felt like just a contrarian shit. Because I read The Sheriff of Babylon, admittedly I only read it once, although there was a bit of flipping between the opening and the ending to make sure that I was following things correctly. Mm-hmm. I think that the, uh, this is uh, – so the contrarian little shit part of me was basically where I was like, oh, okay, Tom King, yes, maybe you should lay off the formalism just a wee bit. You know, <laughs> wow, for you to say that. I know, right? That is just me being like, what the fuck? Well, there's no pleasing this guy, Mr. Jeff Lester. Don't listen to him, everyone. Because I did feel like I, I was kind of like within, uh, let's, let's say, let, conservatively, let's put it at page seven, eight. There was a point, maybe it is halfway through, uh, Three, five, seven, eight, nine. Page ten. At page ten, where there's the different slices of um, the different people in charge of Baghdad who yeah. are talking yeah. to uh, Sophia. Um, I was like, okay, I I think I know exactly where this is going to go, and it proceeded to play out entirely exactly like that. Um, and part of me was like. Oh, okay. Maybe this is a sort of a good thing that you know. I mean, the thing about a formalist or or a structuralist sometimes is is that if you catch on to the structure early enough, it can not necessarily lead to a lot of surprises. And I feel like to me, the only way in which I was confused by the Sheriff of Babylon had entirely was less to do with King and more to do with the fact that, that Mitch uh, Gerard's uh, apart from doing some, uh, some very necessary uh, color coding um, to the scenes to, to make thing to make timelines and, and characters more explicit um, literally in terms of what zones they're in charge of or what yeah. they're commanding. I think that honestly, Jared's while, utterly convincing in terms of, oh, here's a guy who can draw anything and I believe that it's really there and I believe this is a real setting and a real place. A lot of the people looked the same to me, even when they didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily supposed to. And so I thought that a lot of the confusion for me came from the story point of King might have been better served by more of a genuine cartoonist rather than a guy working so strongly in a photorealistic vein that even though even though it is kind of ridiculous that it's like, are you really saying, Jeff, that you're going to blame the artist that you were confused that there were two guys with mustaches or three guys with beards and therefore you're confused by who they are, you know... I I think actually there is yes you are <laughs> something to that yeah I think actually for me there is a little bit of you know that that is the problem when you move from cartooning into illustration is is like if you're going to draw a, a setting where you have people where a lot of people have the same visual affectation you have to come up with other ways to distinguish them other than just like ah you know what. Let me put uh let me put a Dijon mustard uh you know coloring filter on this panel, and the next character I'm going to put a 
heavy Dijon mustard filter on that panel. <laughs> well, it is a very a vertical comic. Yeah, well, there is that. There is like the vertigo now saluting twenty years of mud uh, colored filtering. But yeah, it, it's not a perfect comic. Uh, I, if nothing else, it, maybe it was just me. But does it not just feel that it literally just stops? Yeah. No, I mean, like, I it think literally, it literally like the to be continued feels like it is entirely random, and and it comes at the like in the middle of a scene. Well, I, you know, I have it, to tell it felt you, like watching a TV show where they're like, you know, you know, we don't care about ad breaks, we don't, we don't care about act outs. We're just going to stop when they're, you know, our fifty-five minutes is up. Well, I think a, I think there, there's probably something to that. B, a thing that I find, uh, and, and this is this is horribly ironic because again, I'm still, I have. I'm I'm getting farther and farther behind on Omega Men with every issue. Uh, for King, I feel has a again the formalist love of recursion. Is I really feel like he designed this first ep- this first issue is very much going to encapsulate what is happening in the series overall, which is but that ending works not as a quote unquote ending, but as a moment where it ends with the scene of the guy making the call that pulls the sheriff back into the thing that so uh, essentially it it becomes a um it's a closed loop of a comic you know yeah i, I just like there, there's problems here and i think the problems with that scene are actually kinks i think if you take the call out mm-hmm. or even if you just end it with the call with him as with uh christopher answering the call yeah, it becomes a better final panel. It yeah, I think you need the I got a body here needs to be claimed balloon at all, and mm-hmm. I think if you take that out, it would be a better conclusion to the issue. Hmm. I can see formally how you know it works in that, especially it's it's the echo of the opening pages. Yes, you know the opening pages are 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 the discovery of the body. Mm-hmm. The final page is the discovery of who the body is. Yeah, which is also the launch of what the story is. Right, the fact that he's a trainee uh, police officer. Yeah, um, but it's it's it fudges the landing. It really does. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's not for the first time. I think that it's one of those comics that needs needed a, another pass mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to to tighten things up because there's nothing that's really wrong with it. Yeah, but I feel that there's parts. I feel that the clarity that threw me off entirely the first time. Mm-hmm. Could have been, maybe not fixed, but definitely if it if there was tight, tighter things going on in the dialogue. Tighter, um, yeah, tighter things go well, there, yeah, mm-hmm. I, yeah. It just, uh, I, I like it. I, I like, but the reason that I I'm going to stick around mm-hmm. is literally one word balloon in the middle of the comic. Oh yeah, the one where he says he's responsible for nine eleven. Oh yeah, because that's clearly foreshadowing for something. Yeah, yeah, and I, and that was the point where I was like, I want to know what he means there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like everything else, I not it's, it isn't cliche, but you know, I I feel like I've seen something close to it before. Well, I feel like Christopher is not a particularly original main character, mm-hmm. but that line was the one that leapt out to me. Is like, oh, I want to find out what that is. Yeah. 
it is it's the it's the only line that manages to sort of escape the the vacuum ceiling of the first issue i feel you know cuz it cuz it doesn't get explained and it doesn't get pointed to in anything else uh yeah it's, it's literally just there and if you yeah. don't notice it it doesn't matter no one draws attention to it you yeah. don't get uh and here's what someone else thinks about that line mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. all the way through the rest of the comic yeah all the way through the rest of the comic is literally an event happening understanding i mean and and so that's the thing that i think is interesting I'm willing to come back to it because I feel that King is well again it's 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 ambitious um there is part of me that like I said I feel like the first issue really is going to show you variations on the on the theme of the of this first issue which is literally the different forces at play in this city and more or less the it's very much an issue about the unintended consequences of, you know, the American presence in Baghdad, you know, well, how but, and how so, that gets played out and used and manipulated um, and and echoes and reverberates with, with yes. what's trying to happen. That That's, I think, what it's really about. It's yeah. all about the fact that everyone is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the extent to which... Because, I mean, for a book that is explicitly titled The Sheriff of Babylon and features the cover on the front page in a sidelong pose and, um, you know, it's it's not surprising that the first issue ends. Or rather, I should say, it is actually very surprising that King undercuts that by having a story where the where the sheriff character the, where chris is in is in the dark we know what happened we know why it happened and we get to see the reper, you know the repercussions of 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 the how of it he never finds that out we we only find that out and i and i think again that is that is going to be um you know that's that I don't know. It's intriguing. As somebody who sat through the goddamn movie Green Zone starring Matt Damon, uh, directed by Paul Greenglass, of which I had very high hopes and which I was unbelievably startlingly bored, uh, I, I have to say The Sheriff of Babylon seems like it's going to be much better than that. But I also feel as if King runs a few risks in... In, like you said, uh, he it needs it needs another pass. He, I think King actually needs someone who is a better editor. You know, a, 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 a more a more attentive editor than I think comics are usually used to getting. And I think that King, I think because he seems like such a, a ambitious and very smart and capable cookie, is capable of getting. Like I am fascinated by the fact that Sheriff of Babylon and Vision Number Two, which I also read this week by King, are compared to Grayson relentlessly dour books, you know. And I do think as much as I'm never crazy about uh Tim Seeley's contributions uh to Grayson when he's scripting, I do wonder if maybe his what he brings to the plotting is not just a, a certain amount of levity, but a certain degree of um, 
uh, just just someone that's willing to to take what King's doing and sort of make it bounce or challenge it or give it just a little bit of snap. Because um, mm-hmm. did you end up reading the second issue of of the I, Vision? I didn't. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I actually haven't gone to the store. I'm totally relying on comp copies this week. Bomb, bomb, um, But how how was it? Because I did have this. I was going to buy it digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had this moment of, uh, do I want to? Or do mm-hmm. I want to wait for the trade? Which was what I talked about when I read the first issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how, how would you just how would you describe the second issue? More of the same. Uh, good way. Not altogether. More of the same does not sound like a good thing to me. Yeah, no, I know, and I and I have to say that is part of what's problematic about it is is that. Um, that it 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 actually re- do you remember how one of your complaints was very much how the stylistic tone at the end of issue one uh, you felt really threw off yeah the issue looking at it here I do kind of feel considering how much the plot is built like maybe you know is is very much stacked on the idea that that Mrs Vision. Uh, and the Vision kids now have a secret, and the Vision himself is is a very perceptive character. Um, you know, it's it a it clearly builds out of that incident, but b it doesn't. Ha- there is no. There's really just a sense of things deepening. There is there is not a su- single surprise in this first in in the second issue at all it very much takes everything that you get in the first issue continues it plays plays out that string just a little bit more and so consequently it is one of the second issue is one of those uh issues where you're like where i was like oh yeah this may really work better as a trade depending depending on what you're going for part of me is kind of like well i still want to support it or it it feels like do you remember really where it's kind of like we were kind of getting the heyday of marvel marvel decompression where yeah uh, especially for me when i was still reading uh brian bendis on marvel books and reading an issue of uh of uh, you know the next part in the story and being like oh it's exactly like the prior part except it moves the pieces forward a little in a way that is not at all in any way satisfying you know or or rather surprising i should say and therefore the satisfaction is very much of a oh as a piece of the whole as an extension sure this is great it's not like he betrayed you, you know and again with king being king it's not like you suddenly expect that he's going to like uh you know, completely dispose the tone of the first issue and go with a complete, entirely different tone for the second. Uh, so it was okay. Between the two of them, I did kind of have that thing of like, yeah, King needs a little, there needs to be something that's a little bit more in there. Because I think, although he, King is perfectly capable of uh, ideas and the occasional yeah, mainly his ideas are the things that kind of make me sit up and pay attention apart from sort of the structure. But I'm kind of like, it's it's kind of like if King's not careful, he's going to end up becoming 
a mix of Alan Moore and Brian Bendis that is absolutely going to combine the worst traits of those two uh, writers. And I, and, and that is, that is something that I think is, has me excessively hand wringy about, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's, so. that's interesting. So yeah, I think you've actually kind of, convince me that i'm not going to get it <laughs> i think so yeah I, i'm like ah oh, no no we're killing the industry book by book snuffing them out but no it is very hard for me to be like i think honestly as a as a second chapter in a trade you're going to be like oh this is great and it's amazing that he's continuing the tone it's okay enough maybe not in a 399 kind of way but i mean it's it's an enjoyable, like, there's no other book like it on the stands. So in that sense, picking it up is being kind of a, wow, there's really, yeah. Exactly. You're supporting diversity in the industry. Exactly. But but I didn't exactly have that kind of, um, oh, I don't know, just sort of whiplash snap that a, that a good second or third issue has. Which... Like let's lead let's lead into unfollow number two because I oh I was literally about to go there yeah yeah I I think that that is is a good jumping point you know um, I again I loved it and I I felt that it did I felt that it offered both a deepening but also an element of surprise it did not it did it went to places I did not expect it to go mm-hmm. that that felt like a successful second issue to me. Okay, because I'm not sure that I felt that way. So, so tell me why for you or how. Um, I am particularly interested in two of the characters that this issue focuses on. Mm-hmm. I am very interested in Akira, mm-hmm. the character at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. And I'm very, very interested in uh, the journalist whose name I totally can't remember right now, uh, Ravan. Yes. Um, and Ravan's, what Ravan goes through in this issue, mm-hmm. not only in the present day sequences, but in her flashback, mm-hmm. makes her an utterly compelling lead character. Mm-hmm. And I'm also very surprised that she is the lead of the second issue. Mm-hmm. Because for me, the first issue suggested that the lead was going to be Dave. Mm-hmm. And Dave gets a scene here. Mm-hmm. And it's an scene mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but Ravan feels much more present as the lead of this issue mm-hmm. and as a result turns the book into much more of a uh, an ensemble piece mm-hmm. uh, but what happens with Ravan also I did not expect that particular character to not spoil it who mm-hmm. appears at the opening of the first issue yes. to come back in that place Mm-hmm. And for that purpose, mm-hmm. which makes me now very curious, what is actually going on mm-hmm. with the one party? Mm-hmm. Because that what happens there, uh, when taken in concert with what that character does in the first issue, mm-hmm. suggests there's an ulterior motive at play that is even beyond the motive of the person giving uh, bequeathing the money. Mm. Interesting. I, I was, I was really, I was very drawn into it. And also, for the second issue, uh, Mike Dowling's art is just stunning. Right. Well, okay. So and, for yeah, and mm-hmm. the colors as well. Quentin Winter's colors again are, are lovely. The, the scene at the end, in particular, 
the light that has fallen down behind the character. Yes. There's something about that in particular where I was like, that's amazingly drawn. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm... Uh, uh, it's interesting because I, I I liked Unfollow 2. I, how do I feel? Inter- I actually had a little bit of the... Huh, I should probably... Like, this is almost my version of the second the second issue of the vision you know in the sense of if there was a book that i would jump and trade weight and that is that's not really my modus operandi at all but the second issue of unfollow really kind of made me think that i could do that um because because i i guess i had a different feeling the first few pages particularly the introduction of the character of akira made me feel like, oh, okay, there is, there's a lot more weirdness and strangeness to come um, that that is going to sort of keep you kind of, uh, you know, off balance. And then yeah. actually the rest of the issue for me felt more like such a strong continuation of the first issue's um tone and characters that I, that I wasn't, that I wasn't surprised. My surprises were all kind of built up to the front part being like, huh, okay, that's a very interesting set of decisions slash choices on the part of the creative team. And also kind of like, oh, where is this going to lead later on down the line? But the rest of it, and even sharing as much of your surprise and interest with the end of the second issue, part of me was also kind of like, yeah, but you know, like I kind of just had that thing of like, eh, you see know. that that's that's interesting because that what happens in the end recasts a lot of the first issue for me, and I think that's what I look for in a second issue, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. that broadens the story but also makes you re-examine what you thought you knew, right? Well, and I don't necessarily know if I had that feeling. Uh, per se. I mean, I suppose in a little bit, because I don't think that, I guess for me, particularly where the use of this character is, and God help you all people that we're being I was going to say, we're, we're being super, like, amazingly, uh, supportive the, of, of not spoiling people for this yeah. comic. The way that we aren't for other comics. Yeah, that just is kind of we, like, I, yeah, This I, is how you know that we like a comic. Yeah. If yeah. we dance around spoilers, it means we want you to read it. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, so I, I liked it. I didn't love it. I thought the art was strong. Um, I think, but I think that maybe part of it suffered from, I think reading it post Sheriff of Babylon, also reading it post, there's, there was something else when I was, when you were talking about it, I'm like, oh shit, what does this remind me of? There's something that I've read relatively recently that I don't necessarily know if I can nail down where I was like, oh, it's similar enough. It might, it might be that, um, after picking up the first four issues of this damned band, uh, by, uh, Paul, oh, Cornell. Paul Cornell. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy Brooks. Uh, yes, I hope so. I don't, you know, hold on. Let me see if I, I, it's one of those things because I got them electronically. I literally don't know until the, until the iPad's on. Uh, I, and I ended up buying the fifth issue, uh, because I was like, uh, electronically, because I didn't realize it was out until I got home. Tony Parker is the art and he's fabulous. Um, 
it has enough enough in common, weirdly, with Unfollow, despite having nothing in common in the story premise. There is there. I guess there was just enough of the idea of manipulating the media and a few other things that I was kind of like, oh, it didn't really feel as I don't know. It was it was weird. I was just having a weird. I was reading it more closely enough somewhere between Sheriff and Babylon and this damn band unfollow fits in that scale enough to where I was kind of like, huh, this is kind of a, hmm, okay. This is kind of a thing, you know, it just didn't, it didn't stand out as much as I think maybe a week where if I picked up it and maybe just a few other books, um, I definitely would have been, been on the hook for, you know? Yeah. Um, I was going to say this to to completely jump to something else. Yes. Where are you on Batman and Robin Eternal? I have been accruing issues like a motherfucker, <laughs> and I and I still haven't I still haven't broken past. I think I read issue one. We did the roundtable. Then yeah. you guys were like oh, issue two, surprisingly strong. And then I read issue two. I'm like yeah, issue two is surprisingly strong. And then I. Then it was like I I accrued issues three through like what is it eight or nine I think nine was yesterday yeah nine is out yeah so I'm like six issues behind on it and I've I've got I, them I, all I, yeah. I am still getting them as comps I have no idea how long DC is going to do this for I am surprisingly on board yes I I am genuinely surprised at how strong it is but here's the part where I get very worried okay. also arrived this week in comps. Mm-hmm. is Earth 2 World's End Volume 2, which, for people playing along at home, is issues 12 through 26 of the, the weekly series. Mm-hmm. Okay? I found myself reading Volume 1 whenever it came out and really liking it, being very surprised by how much I liked it. And, and who's the who was the creative team on it, if you don't mind? It's, it's Daniel Wilson, mm-hmm. Marguerite Bennett, mm-hmm. uh, Mike Johnson... Mm-hmm. And for volume two, Colin Bunn gets added to the writing team. Huh. And it is like an army of artists. Right. Eddie Barrows, Tyler Kirkham, uh, George Jolina, uh, there's someone else in there. I can't remember. Uh, and th- but there's a bunch. Like it's, it's literally like five art teams, an, an issue. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. Um, the first volume is surprisingly coherent. And, one of the things I've said to you about Batman and Robin Eternal mm-hmm. is one of my surprises is that unlike Batman Eternal, Batman and Robin Eternal is one story. Mm-hmm. It's one plot that they're advancing. Right. Uh, which works much better for me than Batman and uh, Eternal, which seemed very scattered and very like, and here's the Spectre, and here's this, and, you know, it seemed all over the place. Right. Uh, Earth 2 World's End is very much the same. As Batman and Robin Eternal? Yes, it's okay. it's essentially one plot that they're, they're moving forward. Got it. Volume two of that, and I liked volume one. Volume two literally shows what happens when they realize halfway through the series they do not have enough story. Yeah. And they just start introducing random fucking shit. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing watching how quickly that series falls apart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and honestly, we're nine issues in to... Admittedly, it's only 26 issues, Batman or Robin Eternal. Right. It's, we're nine issues into it, and part of me is already thinking, somewhere around issue 18, they're going to just be like, and here's a story about Bane's love affair with Catwoman. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. And you're like, oh, 
okay. Um, yeah, I got, I get super nervous about it afterwards. But right now, it's a surprisingly strong weekly book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, it's a shame that I'm behind because I mean, I, I should try and round up all the issues and, and, and get her done by the next time we do another wait what because I am I'm normally as you know I went through all of Batman Eternal and I went uh, stuck around for fifty two it is I I like the idea of weekly series a lot but as sometimes happens to me with two thousand A D or or Manka or something if I get in the weeds my OCD ish nature uh, can't. It, I can't just do the, oh, I'll just, you know, re- read the wiki it. and then, yeah, yeah, either just yeah. I'll set aside the time and read all, you know, 37 issues that I've missed, you know, or just jump in and then read a wiki and piece it together. I mean, because there is a thing where it's like, if you think about it, there were so many comics when I started as a kid, almost none of them I followed from the very first issue. I mean, there were a lot, but they were all over by issue 20, but you know, a lot, all the quote unquote greats, there was plenty of times where it was like, you are not starting in at the first issue of Fantastic Four and you're not even necessarily going to, you know, most of these characters at that point had been around on the vine for a while. So, but to speak to your point, I'm very curious if, and this was a a factor that kind of um, had me bitching around the time of the first roundtable, if not in it, is is that the presence of James Tinian Four, who has been through this same route with Batman Eternal, um, and the fact that it's a it's not going to be a full year, makes me wonder that there's going to be uh well, hopeful that there's going to be less vamping um in it. You know, in that sense, the the fact that Tinian Four, apart from all the other stuff that he's he's doing and Christ knows that guy's name is all over the fucking stands is one of the few people I can think of who went from working on a yearly, uh, a weekly comic for a year and then more or less came back for the sequel, which is not something that I think a lot of, there's not a lot of other uh, examples of that. Admittedly, there's not a lot of American weekly comics, so it's very hard to figure that out. But certainly, you know, nobody from 52 came back for, for Countdown. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and Dan DiDio seemed to very specifically ignore any of the lessons that those guys had tried, had, had ended up having to learn the hard way on mm-hmm. 52. So, yeah, no, I completely agree. It, it's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm genuinely surprised how much that Eternal works. That's great. But it does. But it, it right. seems to be working. Which you know? which is great because I, I, I find it fascinating that, to flip the script. I find it fascinating, A, in the sense that uh, <laughs> that in our first issue roundtable, both you and Matt were, were like, oh, yeah, it's good. But I can't imagine it's going to stay this way. And I certainly can't imagine myself following it to me being like, yeah, I was a sucker for the first one. I'll probably follow for the second one. And of course, flash forward two months or whatever it is, and I'm sort of like, yeah, I'm. I'll read it, guys. I'm really going to read it. You know, yeah, I've got it. I'll, re- I'll catch up. I really will. Where, whereas you are, you're on, you're on top of it. Although, again, Graham McMillan comp issues. So, I know exactly. If I had to spend my own money on it, I wouldn't be buying it weekly. Really? You don't think you'd be buying it? Let's say you said you're really enjoying it. If if uh, if the free honey stops flowing next week, think, you're not going to... No, I, think, I honestly think the free honey will stop flowing with issue 12. I think mm-hmm. we're going to 
three months of it. Right. Uh, because that generally seems to be DC's thing. Mm-hmm. You get comps of the first three months of something. Right. Um, it, it depends, because three months in, like, I will be half the way through the series. Mm-hmm. And if it's still as good as it is, mm-hmm. I might actually keep getting it. Okay. But but I do kind of think that it's going to fail at some point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I'm, I'm very cynical. Then again, maybe not. It, it's... One of the interesting things I've discovered is a lot really does depend on my mood when I'm reading these things. Mm-hmm. I read the recent Action Comics storyline mm-hmm. um, and the recent Superman storyline uh, the other day. And that was a reread because I read them when they came out. And mm-hmm. I didn't like them at all when they came out. Mm-hmm. And upon reread, I loved them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, I think Gene Yang's doing some really interesting stuff with Superman. And I'm very surprised that Rich Johnson didn't run a They've Just Killed Off Jimmy Olsen story. Because I think they've just killed off Jimmy Olsen. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, there, there's uh, the current Superman storyline is on, this is this is the point where you're like editors are really earning their keep over DC. <laughs> While in action, Superman is leaving extra big tips to people and going around using Wayne technology so that no one recognizes him. In Superman, he has run out of money and mm-hmm. he is forced to take a job in that Chris Claremont classic. An underground fight club uh, that he's a part of because he's investigating a case, but b he actually needs the money. Mm-hmm. What is interesting to me is it's an underground fight club for mythical creatures, where the mythical creatures reenact their own myths during the fights, mm-hmm. and the winner is determined on which one is basically most well remembered and well loved by the crowd. Huh. Which is a really interesting idea, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He also, during the storyline, suggests, A, that Hoarder Root, the weird Tumblr-slash-Google villain of the last storyline, mm-hmm. uh, is a front for some other bigger villain, who may or may not be Vandal Savage. I'm not quite sure where they're going with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that they're also responsible for him not having his superpowers anymore. Because they've given him to the Sand Superman. Do you remember the Sand Superman? Oh, shit. Yeah, I love Sand Superman. Holy crap. Yeah. So Sand Superman's back, and mm-hmm. he has Superman's powers. Hmm. And Interesting. And he is responsible for either the severe wounding or murder of Jim Wilson, <laughs> depending on where they go with the next issue. Right. Huh. Gosh. You know, it's kind of a shame, because honestly, I, I bought, like, I'm, I bought at least four or five, three to four five issues of action, um, you know, post John Romita Jr. And I'm like, yeah, Gene Yang, yeah. And for whatever reason, I just, maybe because I was buying too much comics at the time, I, I never I never got there. I just never. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. It, it, I've discovered that if I read too many comics at once, genuinely good stuff will just be like, eh. Right. I've really got to pace myself, unless I'm binge reading a particular run of a title. Yes, right. I've, which... I've really genuinely got to pace myself. Otherwise, just, you know, I'll go from... Uh, okay, so an example this week, I read uh, Unfollow, then Sheriff of Babylon, then Robin War. Mm-hmm. And Robin hmm. War seemed like the worst comic known to man. Now, isn't that also Tom King, or am I misunderstanding? Yes, it is. Interesting. It is. Okay. And that, that was why I read it. Because uh-huh. otherwise they'd be like, it's a Robin crossover. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, 
And then I reread Robin War because it got a great review on CBR. Uh-huh. Like a really a four star review on CBR. Mm-hmm. Um and it is actually a genuinely good comic. But because I read it after the two vertical ones, first of all. Right. I was just like, yeah, it's a Robin crossover. Right. You know? So I, I've 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 become much more conscious about the what I read, when I read, and give myself like intellectual room to recover. Uh, yeah. I've also been catching up on image stuff recently. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And for example, I can do great if I'm just mainlining Kieran Gillen stuff. Mm-hmm. And to that matter, like phonogram is amazing. I'm mm-hmm. loving phonogram this time around. Um, but if I do as I tried, uh, phonogram, uh, Wicked and Divine, and then Black Magic, hmm. Black Magic seems terrible. Right. And again, I'll have to reread it because I know that's not a terrible comic. Mm-hmm. Like, Rucket and Nicholas God are not going to do a comic that is as bad as I thought it was. Hmm. I, just, I just know that. I might not like it, but that, right. they're not going to do a comic that seemed as just run-of-the-mill and generic in every sense. And I literally think it's because I was reading the wrong thing beforehand. Could be. I mean, you know, the, it is funny how that works. I definitely... Do, I am aware that sometimes uh, sometimes I do worry that in, in an effort because this I don't uh, listeners I don't know if you paid attention to the uh, the, the amazing crossover uh, secret crossover on infinite podcasts uh, event that uh, the Graham and I participated in over on the Tumblr there were uh, for that uh, event. Um, a few kind souls actually posted their process for how they make a podcast episode. Uh, in particular, uh, Journey into Misery had a great post about how the podcast is assembled. And on on the one hand, I've sometimes because I don't really I don't listen to other other podcasts. Uh, I have no sense of shame, literally. I am, you know, I am in the Garden of Eden, having not partaken of the fruit of of podcasting knowledge. But Graham, who has, occasionally will listen to it or House to Astonish or, uh, you know, Rachel and Miles and the X-Men and basically come back to me and be like, Jesus Christ, Jeff, that we really are, we should be ashamed, you know? Because Graham and I, un- unlike some of those other podcasts, n- literally never know unless we swap an, uh, an email maybe the day of the day before, we usually don't know what we're going to talk about. Like I was pretty aware that I had mentioned Jessica Jones to Graham earlier. And and so the first half of this podcast, it wasn't like Graham and I had it planned, but I think we were very on top of what we we're going to talk about. And there was also a way in which I think for me, pick, because Graham had said, yeah, pick up Sheriff of Babylon to the extent that that was a thing that an unfollow to, I figured would be pretty, pretty much slam dunk, no brainers. But there is a lot of times where the uh, anxious slash compulsive part of me will just devour comics and, and then perhaps unsurprised. Unlike when I was much younger, where I could do that and be able to more or less define them as distinct and have them also stick in my memory, you know, now I feel like when we talk, if I do that too often, not only is it difficult for me to talk about the experience afterward, but like you said, it really does end up being far more colored. It's kind of like, I don't, I don't know if I have enough, um, 
like there is that idea of like maybe I'm maybe I'm buying too many comics, maybe I'm consuming too many comics. You know, even as we try and keep our weekly podcast going, we have our weekly columns that we write for the website, and in the case of this holiday season, much much more. Hint, hint. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm just going to outright talk about it at the end of the show. Don't worry. Oh, are you? Oh, interesting. Yeah. I thought you were going to keep it as a as a special secret. So, um, so that's you know, I do find myself worrying. This is you know, it, we're sort of creeping up on our two hour mark. So I don't really know if we're going to spend a lot of time sort of wringing our hands over it, or or uh, unless you've got a good solution for it. I mean, it left to my druthers, I could probably work something out given, you know, four and a half hours of hemming and lying. All, all, all I can really do, mm-hmm. I've discovered, is if I'm going to be reading a lot of things at once, mm-hmm. um, either space them out, right, or try and work, it's like making a playlist. Try and work out a reading order where I'm not making a massive jump tonally. Hmm. Because if I'm making a massive jump, t- jump tonally, th- the books on either side of the jump will suffer. In Interesting. My I I almost feel that I think that if I read too many books that are tonally similar, the ones that are later in the mix tend to suffer for me. You know, because I'm kind of like, yeah, sure, I've read this. You know, because I've yeah. read books. Like I said, there was a little bit of Unfollow too, where I was like. Uh, I, I feel it suffered a bit from a few of the other things that I was reading coming at the tail end of that. Whereas, weirdly enough, when I jumped and read Spidey number one, I was like, huh, that's a, huh. Like, so, yeah, okay, so tell me about Spidey number one. Well, Spidey, Spidey number one is, uh, hilarious that I got it in a way because it was so much of it literally worked from the alchemy of me picking up the book and being like, oh, holy shit. Like, if they actually, you know, the fact that the logo for Spidey is so similar to the logo for Spidey Super Stories, I I turned to Doug at Comics Experience, and I was like, man, I tell you, if there's a whole section where Spider, Spider-Man has to team up with Easy Reader on this, I'm totally in. And... And Doug made a comment along the lines of like, well, I actually, if you, if you like Spider-Man in high school, it's actually a pretty good book. I'm like, wait, this is, this is a, this is a Spider-Man. He's like, yeah, it's a Spider-Man as Peter Parker in high school book. And I, I picked it up and I flipped through it and it, it helps that the, it really, really helps that the art is by Nick Bradshaw. And so it very much lives and dies on what you think of his art, which I know. Do, I'm do like, you like Art Adams? Right, would exactly. You like an art I was going to say works faster. Yeah, if if you like, guys. yeah. Also, he's he's not as um, all women have a balloon sized breasts and no waists, which is also a plus. Yes, no. In in some ways, sort of the sort of in the same way that um, I can find myself reading Chris Burnham's work and kind of being like, you know, in some ways I think I prefer this to Frank Whiteley in aspects. You know, I found myself with Spidey being like, I think I prefer this work to Art Adams in a variety of, like I see the influence, but I also see that there are other ways and places that it, that he has to go with the artwork. If whether to only make the deadline or like you said, his, his, um, 
his drawings of Gwen Stacy or even uh, Flash Thompson were like, oh, these are these are recognizable like characters, I suppose. You know, it it has the sort of cartoony cartooning chops that um, <laughs> that I that I really feel Nick Bradshaw should draw every issue of Sheriff of Babylon from here on out. Uh, I, so the weird thing about Spidey number one is, is like I said, because I read it, I couldn't tell you, unfortunately, I, I fell behind on my list making cause I was so busy, got so behind the eight ball today. Um, I can't tell you what I was reading before Spidey number one, but I do know that part of me was like, Oh, Hey, this is okay. Well, wait, no, maybe it's not that good, but okay. No, it's. Yeah, no, I, I'm going to give this one the benefit of the doubt. Whereas, like, I think if I, it, if I had read it after, I don't know, four other Spider-Man books, or even four more of the traditional Marvel 616 books, I'd be like, yeah, no, this is kind of the same thing. Because because the art is yeah. s- strong, the script is very much like, hey, what if what if Peter Parker wasn't was in high school and you know come on guys we've got twitter and facebook now you know and instagram and i'm i'm sort of like okay that's enough of a spin i guess i've heard of worse you know it's in that sense it's more satisfying than spider-man the lost years or whatever the burn retakes were no was spider was the lost years was that busiek and what was what are you thinking about Untold Tales of Spider-Man? Yes. That, well, no, no. That, that, that was, was Busiek. That was Busiek and, and Pat Olaf. Yeah, but what was... Thinking of stuff? Spider-Man Chapter 1. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Where where John Byrne was like, we need to retell these stories because fucking Christ forbid that people think that Spider-Man actually interacted with aliens in issue 2, 3, <laughs> I actually completely forgot Spider-Man Chapter 1 existed at first, and I was like, John Byrne wouldn't do that. (laughs) The sad realization that he did. I was just like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. So, uh, so Spidey, number one, if you don't want to read, you know, it's interesting. You know how uh, in our Dark Knight roundtable... uh, Matt Turrell dropped his old school knowledge in discussing the, was it the ship of Theseus or is it the ship of Perseus? Yes. Ship of Theseus. Yeah. The fine gentleman over at Longbox Graveyard, who, uh, who I quite like because he is pretty much a comic book nerd of exactly sort of my age and stripe. And now I have to jump over there to make sure what his name is because he never really attaches it to the website. It's Paul something or other. Paul O'Connor. Paul O'Connor writes Longbox Graveyard. He actually worked in comics, is now doing work in video games, has been around as a nerd forever. He is currently doing a thing which I think is kind of great, which is he's literally doing a capsule review of each of the all-new, all-different Marvel books. And Lord. Yeah, and, and it's good because it really is. It's like... It's a capsule review, approachability for new readers, whether or not he's going to read number two... Uh, and also, weirdly enough, the sales rank. And he runs through it. And one of the things that I thought was interesting is is in his review of um, of uh, of Spider-Man number one, he also brings up the the ship of Theseus to be like, if you take first being like, well, okay, so if you take away Peter Parker being a teenager and angst-ridden and unsuccessful and having to worry about money. Do you still have Spider-Man? 
you know? And his answer was, not for me, you don't. Like, I don't yeah. really, it, it's it's not enough of a, you know. So for some of us for whom Spider-Man, a.k.a. here's a high school student who's, who's um, uh, you know, having all the various angles, it was kind of a nice updating. Part of me is like, yeah, okay, I think that it's sort of a, it's time to update that story, maybe, I I'm think. I'm very amused that that comic exists. Yeah, I can uh, imagine. Well, because they announced the Miles Morales Spider-Man first. And mm-hmm. you remember they announced it as Spider-Man. And they're like, There's, he's not Ultimate Spider-Man anymore. He's just Spider-Man. And everyone yeah. was like, holy shit, they're replacing Peter Parker with Miles Morales. This is great. Marvel is so diverse. Right. And then they're like, amazing Spider-Man. Still Peter Parker, but it's different because Miles Morales is now doing all the Peter Parker stuff. And Peter Parker is now Batman. He's <laughs> Batman and Batman Incorporated, you guys. It's going to be great. Yeah. And everyone's like, uh, it's kind of weird, but okay, Miles Morales, hooray. And then they're like, Spidey. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the Spider-Man you, th- you think he is just because. Yeah. And people were like, I, wh- huh? And then wonderfully, uh, Marvel then went, we're launching Amazing Spider-Man in September. We're launching Spidey in December. We're launching Miles Morales in February. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's great. It was really like, good job, you guys. You mm-hmm. announce Miles first, you get all the headlines, right. and then you kind of kill the possibility of his title really being a massive fit by making it one of the final launches. Well, one of the final launches, but there is a little bit of – I did have that a little bit of the – on the one hand, part of me is like, oh, hey, yeah, Spider-Man is a teenager. But there is that idea of like, really, you if you want that – like. Miles Morales should be able to fill that. He should yeah. be able to scratch or, that itch. Or you know? that Miles, Ms. Marvel. What? No, Graham, no. <laughs> no. No, really. Ms. Marvel is a perfectly good spot. Yes, but no, Graham. I mean, uh, because because it's, I don't know. I mean, I suppose you're right. Once you has, get to that point. has to see. Yeah, if it has to say Spider-Man on it, then sure, Miles Morales. But if you're looking for the Spider-Man formula, Ms. Marvel is great. Like, it does, it ticks all the boxes. Does it? Yeah. The, okay, the only box it doesn't tick is, well, that's not true, there's two of them. One is male, and two does whatever a spider can. So, which dead family member is she avenging? Fine. <laughs> you win. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, that's really interesting because that family member is not part of my like Spider-Man important facts. I me. suppose. I, I suppose that's true. I suppose. Like, I, I don't it's, know. It's not. It, it's if you were like describe Spider-Man, I don't even think I'd mention Uncle Ben. You know. Uh, it, it's funny because I actually feel that, that I, I am cheating a little bit, but there is a Spider-Man to me has a bit of a, he's, there is a component of being hounded by guilt, uh, in what he does that I, that I think is kind of necessary. I think that has is been that, downplayed. Is that still years. in place? I don't know if it is. Is, frankly. Miles, is Miles Morales still hounded by guilt? Uh, I don't know. I, 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 I think that's, I would, I would argue that's absent from Miles Morales. 
could I I think considering I am actually have the issues stockpiled on Marvel Unlimited to read and haven't read them, I have to concede that point. But I'm also there's part of me that was kind of like eh, in my very lazy way, and in part because God damn it, for whatever reason, I cannot actually find the link to the Amazing Spider-Man review. I'm like, here's his checklist of all his all new, all different Marvel books that he's read. Why isn't the hyperlink for the Spider-Man book there. God damn it. Um, That's serious. He does, he does run through a checklist of stuff and I'm kind of like, Oh yeah. All right. That makes sense. And I do feel that there is a little bits of the, yeah, driven, the, the, the driven by guilt. I do think that that is something that honestly, weirdly enough, uh, has fallen by the wayside for the conception of Spider-Man, you know, which I, here is, here's his list. Mm-hmm. Is Spider-Man still Spider-Man if he's no longer short on cash, worried about his aunt, juggling needy girlfriends, on the run from the cops, vilified by J. Jonah Jameson, misunderstood and disrespected everywhere, and getting his ass kicked on a daily basis? Okay, that's a good list. He also leaves out the, the guilt then. Yeah, I, I – guilt is, one, is, is a prime motivator for him, but I think if you're asking someone to describe Spider-Man, mm-hmm. I'm not sure – how many people would actually include Uncle Ben? Hmm. I, I even think people might include great power, great responsibility, but not include the dead uncle. Yes. Right. Which is interesting because argue, yeah, because it, because it is fascinating. Cause I mean, cause great power, great responsibility is essentially literally comes from, yeah, it's literally that feeling boiled down into, you know, a, 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 Mission statement, I guess. Yeah, catchphrase, yeah. Yeah. That's, so. that's really, really interesting. Jeff, we've reached the end of another episode. <laughs> I, I'm inclined to agree with you, Graham. <laughs> we have talked for more than long enough. Yeah. Um, I, oh, this is the part where I'm supposed to say where you can find us, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I thought you were going uh, for. Just no, to, that, they're like, we've reached the end. I'm like, Graham. No, it's just be like, we reached the end. Okay, there's a few things I want to say then. Um, I said, I said I was going to mention this earlier on. Hey everyone, we're doing a, a special thing for Patreon uh, supporters. And I want to say in the podcast, in case no one has A, received the email through Patreon, or B, seen me mentioning it on Twitter and Tumblr, because I suspect this might be the case. Um, if you are a Patreon supporter, we are doing an advent calendar uh, on the website. Uh, that you should have received an email with details about it. If you have not, uh, please email us at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com to let us know. Yeah. Uh, also, please remember that we do know who our Patreon supporters are. So if you email to be like, hey, you guys, we'll know. We'll know. Um, it's an advent calendar of festivity. It's an advent calendar of uh, Jeff and myself. Writing about Christmassy comics, really, and but not just Christmas. I should say this because this is going to come out on the seventh. Uh, so yes, the um, the eighth mm-hmm. will will be our, our first ever Hanukkah uh, installments. Wow. Which Jeff might not even know. Do you know? Have you looked? No, ahead? I do know Let's that. Go. I do know yeah. that because I peeked at some of your posts. I was, <laughs> I, I've been able to look forward, although in a way that was intensely difficult. I was finally able to to check out some of the things that Graham Graham, unlike me, knows how to work a calendar and a plan, and so therefore there are some very delightful entries in the advent calendar that are well timed with events uh, in in on our our calendar. 
So, uh, our account here in the real world. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, so yeah, th- those those were out there for our Patreon supporters as a thank you for everything that you have done for us this year. Uh, if you are curious what this what the hell this Patreon thing is, patreon.com forward slash wait what podcast uh, will tell you. We are supported by how many people right now, Jeff? 114. Which is just nuts. Yeah. And, and really, thank you. It's ridiculous. So I don't know if any of you are even interested in Advent Calendar, but that's what you're getting as a thank you. Yes. Yeah, I hope I hope you will enjoy it. <laughs> uh, I should mention, of course, also that um, uh, it, 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 as well as thanking the 114 people who, who make this possible. And oh, no, there's, there's two in particular that we should – Exactly. I want to give give big ups to the kind crew over at American Ninth Art Studios for their continuing support of the podcast. And our special thanks to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, uh, and also a provider of which, which made Jeff being able to talk about Legion of Superheroes, especially the five year later uh, bit with any knowledge whatsoever. Uh, we are thankful to both of those uh, fine uh constellations as well as the uh, the rest of the supporters i know you're like eh, okay we get it you were supported by patreon but do keep in mind for those of you who are enjoying for example our baxter building podcast where we read through all the first 416 issues of the fantastic four very directly responsible uh the, the patrons have made it i don't know why i had to deliver that like yoda i think that seemed a little i and i, I like i also necessary. like the fact you distinctly reference the legion thing just after we say that we might cut it out so good job god damn me <laughs> what is wrong with this is why i don't i can't oh, stop this is a man I, who cannot follow a plan that he set three minutes earlier and what by I, him yeah. i don't mean graham so i wish i did yeah I, um, I no i think you should just leave that in even if we cut the legion part out because yes. that would be hilarious and you should also leave this in, so everyone to be like, what the hell are you talking about? What are you talking about? Exactly. All we're saying is, things are happening with um, the podcast. Yeah. So, for once, we're trying to do planning, and then immediately betraying our own plan. So, yeah. good job, us. Yeah. Oh, you. I'll tell you where else you can find us. You can find us on Twitter, at WaitBotPodcast. Uh, you can find Jeff on Twitter, at LazyBastid, L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. You can find me on Twitter, at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. Mm-hmm. You can find us on Tumblr, which I you've been good at updating recently, but I have been terrible at, waitwhatpods.tumblr.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find us on the internet, mm-hmm. where we have show notes for these episodes, and we also have written pieces. Uh, we just, as we record last week, uh, finished our second roundtable, where Jeff, myself, and Matt Terrell talked about The Dark Knight 3, The Master Race. Or DK3, I think it's officially called. Yes. Uh, DK3, The Master Race. Um, and every week, Jeff, myself, and the far more talented and smart than either of us, Matt Terrell, uh, has been, uh, we offer written posts about stuff. Normally comics, occasionally not. Yes. In fact, uh, for those of you who, for whatever reason, I I decided uh, in between uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday to uh, write literally over five thousand words. Uh, it wasn't epic. I was I was like Jeff, you could just publish that shit. 
<laughs> Kindle single, Jeff. <laughs> it it is about a Kindle single in length. It is true. Of everything that I read comic book wise in the month of November, capsule reviews. Uh, and just a, a lot of me going on and on. I would like to think that actually people enjoyed it. I don't, I can totally understand if everyone bailed out, but let's say that you're sitting here listening to this podcast and you're like, Meh, sure, this is fine, but I'd like to read 5,000 words, including what Jeff thought of Sun Can Rock some more, uh, all 165 chapters. Go check it out, you know? I mean, I'm. I, I don't necessarily know that I'm proud of it, but I do think that part of me is like you should be proud of it. I, I feel like after writing five thousand words, I at least want to let people know so that they can decide whether or not to read it, as opposed to them going like, "Oh, that was the thing. Oh, I I guess I would have read that," you know. <laughs> so, anyway, listeners, we have babbled on more than enough this time. Thank you very much for listening. We will be back next week with, I believe, a Baxter building. That is correct. Where I think, do you remember, did we jot down? We're, we're doing it all. We're doing 95 through 102. We're doing the end of the Kirby run. Ooh, 95 through 102. I sure hope I have that written down somewhere. Uh, yes. Just read through the end of the Kirby run, Jeff. Right. How hard can that be, right? It's actually, it's a bunch of issues. The hardest part is, are we able going to be able to talk about, what is that, seven issues in... 13, uh, 13 issues. I'm trying to get eight issues in two hours. The answer, probably not. Yeah, we'll really have to. It, it is sad that it, it becomes a race against time. <laughs> as as two turtles locked in Mortal Kombat uh, race for the finish line. Um, yeah, that we'll, makes it we'll... sound a little more dramatic than <laughs> Yeah, come back next week for uh, Turtles, colon, the Baxter Building story. <laughs> and then in two weeks, we'll be back with a regular Wait What? That's which right. may or may not be the last Wait What of the year. I, I, right. Exactly. Holy shit. Yeah, right? So, um. Jeff Lester, that's amazing. I know. I know. I think that's kind of great. And again, there's part of me that's like, uh, when you factor in the, the, because of the support of you find individuals, we ended up doing, 12 we'll be recording the 12th Baxter building next week which means that we really did do 12 extra episodes of way what yeah or or three episodes a month at least mm -hmm. i think well actually or at most so that's like that's 36 episodes that's a lot people that is that is that is a lot of frippery and also i'm just putting this out there if the last day of the advent calendar might be an extra episode just, just, just saying. Maybe, maybe, maybe. maybe. That, that would be that would be something else. That would be. That'd that be would. That, I, I have to say, I would certainly be impressed with us if that was the case. No, um, we could never. We could. Let's face it, Jeff. We genuinely could never manipulate pull, pull that off. I know it is true, but oh, let's let's just say you know what would be great was if we got like a if we got a holiday podcast and it was like Matt Terrell talking to somebody else entirely. <laughs> oh my god, that would be so great. <laughs> that would be really. Because we've gone on holiday. Yeah, exactly. Does it just uh, play the little jingle theme and then we, it comes we, in and there's we, Matt? We, yeah. Oh yeah, we should say. People who would be checking out that Macal don't know this. You like her theme song? There's literally a Christmas version of it up on the Advent calendar. 
how can you how can you how can you get into this goodness? It's it's ridiculously easy, especially if you're already a patron. Graham, we've got to go. We yeah, will. we do. Mm-hmm. Hey, everyone, thanks very much for listening. Uh, we will try and be more sensical or <laughs> not sensical next time. <laughs> Jeff, do you want to sing us out? You know, I. Considering I coughed every time I laughed, oh, I'm fine. Bye! Yay! <laughs> Shoo! Outsource that one. Well done, Graham. <laughs> <laughs>